Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Our approach has to be that we're down 3-1. They're desperate. We have to be more desperate. They're hungry. We have to be hungrier. And uh, there is no celebrating after game four. We have another game that we have to win. And the close that game is always the hardest game ever. So I'm looking forward to seeing our approach. You know, we had it in game six against Phoenix. We had it in game five against Minnesota. We had it in game four against the Lakers. And my hope is that tomorrow night in front of just an unbelievable crowd, incredible environment, that our players understand the opportunity in front of them and take full advantage of it. It is at an all-time high just because it always has been all year. It always will be. The belief that we have in one another, it, it stems from the amount of time that we spend one another and how we actually enjoy being around one another. And we know what each other is capable of. Uh, so we didn't come this far to, to stop playing now, no matter what the odds are, the analytics. When we get out there, we just got to compete. We got to win one, and then we got to win another one, and then um, we got to win another one. Don't let them get one, because if they get one, they'll have two. Simple math there for you in Jimmy Butler's mind in the Miami Heat. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison. Happy Monday to you on the Fan Midday Show. We'll get plenty into what could likely be the deciding Game 5 of the NBA Finals with the Nuggets holding a commanding 3-1 series lead over the Miami Heat as things shift back to Denver for Game 5. And Denver looks for their first NBA title in franchise history. Coverage begins, of course, 7.30 right here on 93.5107.5 The Fan. But we'll dive Colts to start things today. James, I know you'll be out there tomorrow as the final session over these next couple of days before training camp. Fist bumps in the air for James because as you would expect, even though he's eager to see more Anthony Richardson, eager to handle your mentions further on the <laughs> Anthony Richardson Gardner Minshew debate. NFL beat writers, NFL reporters, we feel it here in the station. There, there's no days off throughout the NFL calendar year. It's become, as we all know, a 365-day, 24-7 cycle within the NFL. But a brief reprieve between the end of veteran OTAs, the end of this week, and then the start of training camp in Grand Park in July. So, James, we're not going to let you take a breath just yet today. We've got (laughs) to get everything that we can out of you while you're here. And that first begins with where your outline is and where the three of our outlines are heading into veteran minicamp to close things out before that little gap to training camp. Where are you most intrigued? Where are you most focused outside of the obvious, which is the Richardson Minshew constant debate. As you look at this team, as you look at this roster, where are the most need for answers going into training camp in your mind with the ongoing veteran minicamp to begin and then the decisions that will have to be made between now and training camp? I really just want to see the wide receivers and the tight ends healthy. I think it was tough to gauge how well each quarterback was doing beyond, you know, obviously the throws they made or missed, but who they were throwing to. I mean, the last OTAs we were at, Alec Pierce is out. Jelani Woods is out. Michael Pittman Jr. is out. Josh Downs is out. Like, these are people that you expect to be on the field 
potentially as your starting offense. And so that's what I would like to see the most. And then obviously the same goes for the defense. We talk so much about Isaiah Rogers senior and the situation he is in now with the alleged gambling violation. Okay. That opens the door for Darius rush, Julius Brents, both of which have not participated in OTAs the last few weeks. Juju Brents hasn't participated at all because of the wrist surgery. So you want to see at least one of those guys get in on the action. I know Juju, I believe his timeline might be a little bit different, but for Darius, it's like you would love to see him get in there, get in the mix, and just be able to showcase why they drafted him. So that's my biggest thing is probably just health. It seems like they're a bit dinged up, and every time we go out there, I'm counting who's in street clothes and kind of off to the side. And so that's the biggest thing for me, especially when you're trying to evaluate the quarterbacks. Again, you want to see who they're throwing to because every time I throw to somebody, I'm like, okay, that's Malik Turner, you know, that's uh, you know Vincent uh, Smith and, and players like that. And it's like these guys – are good players you can't be you know a bad player make it on the NFL roster in any capacity however we all know that the roster is going to look a little different on game day and so you'd like to see you know a game day type of roster available in veteran minicamp this is really the last at least in my mind the last window of opportunity prior to training camp prior to where you'd be kind of rushing things along a bit in terms of personnel decision making or personnel changes outside of injuries of course where we're having this conversation last week and we're continuing to have it today. Uh, do they bring in a veteran at corner? Do they keep the group they have right now? That's another area that you'll obviously be focused on because, and the coaching staff will be as well, because once we get past this window, there's a couple weeks for the Colts to really sit down and reflect and Chris Bauer to really sit down and reflect with Shane Steichen and company about where this roster is at, but also if you want to make a change if it was me anyway or if you want to bring in a veteran corner I would like them to be at West 56th Street ready to go and then ultimately at Grand Park and ready to go before the start of training camp so with that in mind where will be your evaluators or those as you walk the beat where will be those evaluators of okay I see potential or I get a vision if they want to go really young at corner this year or no I think they should really bring in a veteran before training camp you know what it's hard to gauge because of the injuries again had they been healthy maybe I feel a little bit higher on Darius Rush Juju Brents but without that it's harder to gauge I will say this though I'm in the camp that you should probably bring in a veteran receiver not receiver a veteran cornerback just to show people how it's done and how you survive in the league I think that you know um, if the price range is right obviously you don't want to bring in a guy who's going to demand a lot of money and obviously at this stage of free agency if you're asking for a lot of money and you haven't been picked up yet then it's probably not meeting what you're going to do on the field but I think that it would be beneficial to at least explore the option now again we talked about it last week if you get a get out of jail free card this is it you can just say hey we have planned on this this gambling situation arose and now we're just going to go really, really young and, you know, pile up the losses. I'm not going to say that part of it, but that will be part of the equation. So, again, I think that, you know, structure, culture matters. So if you have someone you think is out there, a veteran who, you know, has proven to be of high character and truly someone who's like a, you know, a hard hat lunch pill type of guy, I don't see that as a reason why you shouldn't go get him. I think you should. And, you know, if the price is right, why not? It'll be a one-year deal, most likely, obviously. And then someone who can help mentor that group. Because as much as we want to see the young guys play, at the same time, you want to make sure that they're um, put 
into an environment that's going to help them succeed? While I don't fully agree with the analysis from our own Eddie Garrison last week in regards to the conversation we had on DeAndre Hopkins and he was never coming in, but we did that exercise of, well, if the Colts brought him in, what would it do for the development of wide receivers? I get Eddie's point. I just feel like there's positives to be gained there. Not trying to revisit that conversation. I'm just referencing it because I do agree with Eddie's philosophy to an extent, though, in the cornerback room, because if you're bringing in a cornerback on a one-year deal and you knew going in this was going to be a highly contested audition for your rookie cornerbacks versus Kenny Moore versus Isaiah Rogers prior to the allegations from the NFL and in his likely suspension and, and unavailability this season, depending on how all that goes down, you now know that you're going to be down a body in the secondary, but you also drafted with the idea that one or both of those contract year guys in Rodgers in Moore might not be here in 2024. And so to bring in an Eli Apple, a Marcus Peters, a Kyle Fuller, to, to bring in anybody like that at this point on a one-year deal, you have to have that same pros and cons game that we had when we were laying out DeAndre Hopkins as what is it going to do for younger players in their development? Does it stunt their growth? Or does it help them learn and know what it's like to play the position at a high level in the NFL and to carry yourselves when you're not in between the lines on the field on Sundays. That's one half of the coin. The other half is, is the grunt, is the growth stunted or are you in a situation where it's causing more harm than good? Because in my mind, I agree with you. It's a one year deal. Regardless if it's Apple, if it's Fuller, if it's Peters, if it's Darby, whoever you want to go after in terms of that's just a couple free agents. You're looking at a one-year deal in all likelihood because that's a situation the Colts are in. And as you just mentioned, James, we're at a point now on June 12th where we're no longer at the very top of the shelf for free agents available. These are guys that either had disputes for what they wanted money or years on their deals, or these are guys that people don't see as a fit for their teams. I mean, they're not good players but it clearly there's been some type of miscommunication either by teams or by the players themselves for why they're still out there. Particularly Eli Apple, who, again, I feel like he gets toasted way too often at, as a corner. Like We always talk about how hard that position is, but that's what's frustrated me watching him over the years. That being said, he's 27 years old. You could argue he's in the prime of his football playing career right now. And despite being a key part of a Bengals team that made a Super Bowl and made it to an AFC Championship game the last two years, flip-flop there, of course, but he's an available free agent on the market. And that is surprising to me at this point of all those names. Here we are June 12th, and there's still not any type of deal done there. Yeah, I mean, you can look at Marcus Peters the same way. Like, okay, this is an older guy, obviously, but someone who's accomplished. And is it worth it? I think that's the question you have to weigh And what complicates it is that you were already thin at that position. And so I think it comes down to how confident you feel in your group, the talent that they have, the potential that they have, the opportunities they'll have, obviously. And then also how much do you trust Kenny Moore to sort of show that group how it's done? And I do think that he could be very good in that role because of his path. You know, Kenny Moore wasn't a first-round pick who, you know, ascended to greatness and – never really had a dip or anything like that. He's had to grind to get to this position in his career as an undrafted guy, as a guy who played for a Division II program. So I do think that he can offer a lot of insight 
to rookies and younger players about what it takes to not only last in the NFL but thrive. You know, Kenny Moore was a Pro Bowler two years ago. I know last season was probably his um, most pedestrian season as being, you know, full-time starter. But I expect for him to uh, come out with a hunger this season and something that obviously might be able to, you know, rub off on some other guys in the room who will have big opportunities in front of them as well. So, again, I think it comes down to how much you trust Kenny Moore and then how much you trust these young guys. And then also, like I've been saying, they will never say it, but I will, how much you factor in, okay, if we don't go out and get this guy, does that mean one or two more losses and a higher draft pick? And does that higher draft pick mean that we're picking a franchise-altering player rather than just a really good one? I mean, in all likelihood, and I know nobody wants to hear this when we're so far out from the season, but most fans of their favorite teams have an understanding of where their season is going to be at. There's a reason we all are aware of this, why the Colts are at six and a half as their win total in Las Vegas or in sportsbooks, wherever you go play. There is a reason that they had the kind of season they did, which is... We've talked about it nauseam a large part with the quarterback position and how quickly they're able to resolve that. There's not perfection in every other spot in the roster by any means, but that is the biggest key to win in this league. And even if Anthony Richardson gets to start week one, and even if he is a blow away, just franchise guy right out of the gate, which would surprise a lot of people, even myself, not to say he couldn't grow into that one day, this is likely a team that is hovering around that win total with how bad the South is, you never know. Maybe you're able to sneak your way in down the stretch. But this is very much a year that is equal about we want on the field results, but also we want development with these young guys. And there's a lot of positions where it is likely a rookie at the helm and immediately seeing their development. We talked about it at cornerback. We've talked about it at quarterback as well. High expectations on Josh Downs out of the gate if he's able to get a starting nod within this wide receiver room who obviously had to battle with Isaiah McKenzie for that. The other room that really fascinates me going into veteran minicamp and going into the the final stretch before training camp is this crowded tight end room. When you look at, start from the top level of the tight end room for a second, when you look at the evaluation that's going to take place in this battle between Jelani Woods, Mo'Ally Cox, Kylan Granson, regardless of who the, st- the starter is, you would expect to some extent, unless one gets true separation, that I don't want to say by committee, but it's going to be situational at times with how you see these tight ends worked. Where are your observations first from those three on the depth chart before we get into the extra bodies that are fighting <laughs> for spot in the seven room? <laughs> yeah, tight end it's covered? pretty deep, right? Pretty crowded. I do think that. Jelani Woods was my tight end number one coming into the season, but that's before we had any OTAs, rookie minicamp, all those things. I just think that with his size and speed and skill set, the possibilities within a Shane Steichen offense are really enticing. And I think he showed a lot of promise last year as someone who can be um, a threat. And so that's one factor. But then, you know, he's been out pretty much the entire time for OTAs and the person who's popped up and really shined has not been Mo Ali Cox, the veteran has been Colin Granson, you know, someone who is more of a pass catching tight end. And so I think he's done well for himself to show what he's capable of doing. Now, again, we were only out there for one day a week. Does it look different on other days? Maybe, but man, it was, he was making plays with either quarterback each time he was out there. And so I think that those um, three guys, 
you know, between Kylan, Moali Cox, and Jelani, I probably still would lean towards Jelani at this point in the offseason being, you know, the starter just because, again, his skill set is so unique. And he's such a big target. I mean, big people in football really matter. And so if you have a big target out there, someone who's uh, sure-handed, I just feel like when you get down, especially in that red zone area, that's going to give you a lot of comfort to know that you can just kind of throw it up to him. And whether he catches it or not, you know you can put it to a place where no one else can get it but him. You know, one of those safe throws where it's like, if my guy can't get it, no one else can get it. And so I think the rest of the room kind of breaks down behind them. Who's going to be that tight end too? Is it Moali Cox because he can block better and he's more of a veteran, knows the playbook better? Or is it Kylan because he's showing what he can do? So I think that those three guys are still comfortable the top guys. I, again, I would lean towards Lonnie being the number one guy, but obviously things can change throughout the offseason. And then as for the rest of the group, I have no idea, just to be honest. I mean, I know you're not supposed to say that as a reporter, but like, it's true. I don't know that they know at this point. I mean, Drew Ogletree, he looked amazing last year in training camp towards ACL. He's still recovering, you know, from that. He tore it last August. So, again, you don't know what he's going to be because he looks really good. If he picked up where he left off, then it becomes even more, you know, complicated. And then, obviously, with Will Mallory, he's been out with a foot injury. You don't know how far that set him back. And so there's just a lot of bodies in that room. And I think that this is one of those good problems for the Colts. Now, we talk about – them being extremely thin at cornerback, that's a problem that gives you like a bad headache. This one gives you a good headache because it feels like you have a lot of players who, no matter who you put in there, can succeed in a different way. And so I'm excited to see how it all unfolds. But again, I just can't pick against a guy like Jelani Woods, who is six seven, big body, and um, showed so much promise in the offense last year that really didn't have too many bright spots out of him outside of him. And maybe a couple Alec Pierce plays. It was a really um, anemic offense. And so to see him have those flashes, you can only wonder what it will mean, not only for him, but for the entire offense to have the same quarterback most likely throughout the season. And then a new coach who can hopefully, you know, utilize and scheme you all up the right way. Of the 18 touchdown passes caught by receivers, that includes tight ends and wide receivers, last year at Florida during the 13 starts from Anthony Richardson, three of them came from tight ends, the rest of which came from a variety of different wide receivers. We've joked about it a time or two that it wasn't exactly an Alabama or Ohio State-like treasure trove of wide receivers for Anthony Richardson last season. That being said, it's still the SEC and there was still talent out there. But when you look at the weapons that are going to be around him in year one, this is under operating underneath the assumption he will be the starter week one. We know Jonathan Taylor's probably the answer, but when you look at pass catchers, is it Michael Pittman Jr. that holds the most weight or the most importance to Richardson's development and or comfortability of getting set as a quarterback, or is it somebody in that tight end room, or is it somebody else off the board at wide receiver? I think Michael Pittman Jr. is high on that list because he's the most talented wide receiver and obviously your most talented player in that receiving room, you want him to gel well with your quarterback. And he's sure-handed, and he can run a variety of routes. Um, and I do think that across the middle, he's someone who's just really fierce and knows how to um, get open, catch with his hands, and take hits and things like that. But I would argue that, and again, we haven't seen enough of it for me to feel super confident in it, but Josh Downs. I mean, you think about the quarterbacks in the NFL the really good ones, they all have that sure-handed check down, you know, move the change receiver 
who they may not be a star, but they're a star in that role, in that sense. And so I think that he's someone who could be sort of a mismatch whenever he lines up on the field and give Anthony Richardson sort of a security blanket to make sure that he can complete some passes, get in the rhythm, and move the chains. And so that's a big thing for me. My thought on it is we've struggled with observations for the wide receiver room the last couple of years, and a large portion of it I'm going to blame on the quarterback room that has been a revolving door to carousel since then. We won't go into the weeds on that once again, but if you know, you know. It's Anthony Richardson in all likelihood this year or some combination of Anthony Richardson and Gardner Minshew, and the hope is that there's finally a level of connection between quarterback and wide receiver where we're finally able to not only see what we have out of a rookie quarterback if you're the Colts, but also you're hoping they can see what they have on these receivers where it's a contract year for Michael Pittman Jr. That's yeah. that's another big reason why I would argue that development is key between those two because if you're going to keep Michael Pittman Jr., you want to know that there's a true established connection between them to the point that, okay, this is a receiver I want to spend decently high money on. I don't think it's by any means reset the market type of money, but we've seen how wide receivers have been paid around the league the yeah. last couple seasons. If you're going to make that investment, you need to know that regardless of when Richardson gets the start, he's the future, not Minshew. You need to know there's a connection there between a wideout you're going to break the bank for or at least spend a pretty penny on before you do it or before you reevaluate and decide, hey, maybe this isn't the path. Maybe we just do a franchise tag. We debated that last week regarding Jonathan Taylor next year Mm -hmm. and the decision on the tag between him and Pittman. It's equally as important, not just for Pittman's own personal gain, but also for the health of this team moving forward, that there is a true connection and established connection very early on between Richardson and Michael Pittman Jr. Yeah, I mean... I get it. I think you have to pay Pitt. We talked about it last week. We talked about it on weeks, you know, prior as well about, you know, who's most likely to get re-signed. Is it Pitt? Is it JT? What's the value in both? And I think where we look at the running backs and we kind of scoff a little bit at, wow, like you can have a great season and you're still going to be on the chopping block. Wide receivers are a little bit different. Like you get paid more even though you might not be, you know, in that caliber, in that group, you know, so to speak. So, for example, I think JT is a better running back, like better in his position than Pittman is at, at his position. However, the latter position, the wide receiver position, is the most important. And so I get what you're saying. I do think that chemistry between him and Anthony Richardson would pay dividends. And I also, you know, pitch at that point in his career where he probably thinks, you know, I want to get some security. Just had, you know, his baby boy. I don't want to get too far off football, but like family matters and paying bills matters and they play a violent sport. So although I think part of him might want to be like, man, if I can get through this season and test free agency and see what's next and see what my true value is, that'll be great. But at the same time, if he can get, you know, a long term deal in place for what he feels is fair money and what the Colts obviously feel is is good enough in that range. And, and to me, that's probably what, 20 million a year? I mean, I know he's going to ask for it, and I know you might think, ah, maybe not, but that's the going rate for wide receivers, and obviously, you know, that's something that you have to factor in as far as do we overpay a little bit for a wide receiver because it means that much to our quarterback's development. And so those are the questions you have to ask, but I do think that um, something will get resolved with Pitt if he wants to get it done. I think, obviously, you know, uh, 
trying to read what he's saying and we've asked him about it and he was just saying leaves it all to his agent but uh, we'll be able to find out pretty soon you know what it means to him personally to test his own you know uh skills and and and, and marketplace value on the open market next summer or just go ahead and cash in this summer and secure his future with the franchise that for the first time in his career probably has a quarterback that's going to be there, you know, with him for more than one season. He's going to get paid. Doesn't matter if it's here or not. And yeah. maybe it gets prolonged a bit because of the tag. Do you pay him? If you're, if you're the Colts GM? That's why I'm talking about I need to see that established connection because if it's not clear that, okay, we've, we're cooking with something now here with Richardson and Pittman, I don't know. So you're saying you're okay with it going on, like this negotiation going on into the season? Yeah, I'm not... So like no rush but to get I, it done. Before. I don't. I don't feel pressure right now. Gotcha. If I am in the front office, and necessarily get it done. Do you? No, I don't think I would either. I think that you would prefer that because obviously, <laughs> it's funny. I was gonna say you create distractions. I will be the distraction because I'm gonna ask you every <laughs> single week until you sign the guy. You know, long term. Sure. Hey, what's going on, with Michael Pittman Jr.? I mean, I hate to be that guy, but it's a question you have to ask. And so I agree with you. But the longer you wait, obviously. I do think that there is going to be, even if it's not personal, there's going to be a part of you as a player where you're like, man, like I deserve to get paid. I should have been paid by now. They're not paying me. And I'm not saying that Pitt is going to pout or it's going to affect his playing level. However, it is a factor. As much as we try to act like it's not, these players get paid a lot of money. A lot of money is involved. And when money is not exchanging hands as you see fit, then that becomes more and more of a thing. The larger reason why I wouldn't do it is, let's just say, for the sake of argument, you pay Michael Pittman Jr. today. It breaks. This is hypothetical, folks. It breaks that Michael Pittman Jr. has been paid, let's just say, Christian Kirk-like deal, four years, 72, about $18 million a year, just for the sake of sake of argument. They do that. They get a long-term deal in place with them. The conversation immediately shifts to Jonathan Taylor, and that's the conversation for the rest of the year. And it'd be your job, and I know you're going to do it. Everybody's going to do it. What are you paying JT? What's happening to JT? Yeah. That's where the conversation shifts. And I don't want to have a thought process from the human side of it of, oh, well, they paid Michael Pittman Jr. Why haven't they paid me if I'm Jonathan Taylor? Like I, I would rather wait and evaluate because unless the contracts are perfect or unless they're perfect fits in the offense, both aren't getting paid next year. One is likely going to get the tag or be shown the door or be sent somewhere else in my mind. Yeah. Unless everything's perfect and you feel a must need to keep them both long term. JT might be seeing that franchise tag. We'll see. We'll see. We're going to take a trip around the AFC South today. Greg Arias, who covers the Titans for alltitans.com, affiliated with Sports Illustrated and the like, going to take us through the Titans offseason. Jonathan Alexander going to join us top of the 2 o'clock hour. He covers the Houston Texans for the Houston Chronicle. We'll get the latest down south. Marcus Thompson covers the NBA at large for the Athletic. Will be with us top of the 1 o'clock hour. Potentially deciding game. Game 5, NBA Finals. Heat season on the line. Nuggets looking for their first championship in franchise history. You can hear that, of course, which covers starting at 7.30 right here on 93.5107.5 The Fan. We'll take this first time out. Greg Arias covers the Tennessee Titans for alltitans.com. AFC South Journey today on the Fan Midday Show. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. 
Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Back here in the DriveHebrew.com studio, I'm James Boyd, alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Jimmy, we have a lot going on when it comes to the NBA, the NFL. Um, we'll get into the AFC South here in a little bit. Anthony Richardson, ESPN sighting. Sorry. <laughs> Squirrel. Oh, goodness gracious. Wait, that's not it's Aaron Rodgers. It's happening. It's, it's not. It's not Rodgers oh, in the ankle. Wow. It's fourth overall pick in 2023. So this is like me being the teacher <laughs> in the class that says, listen up, you know, silence. Both of you are going to be in timeout pretty soon. We need a siren from Sorry. now on. Eddie will work to, after that, after the show. Anytime Anthony Richardson <laughs> pops up on the television nationally, we'll get it going. <laughs> but before we get into more NBA, NFL, those types of things, we'll focus solely on um, the Titans. We have Greg Arias um, on the line. He is gracious enough to hop on. I actually just messaged him this morning. So, Greg, thank you for being clutch. And I'll ask, <laughs> how are you doing today? <laughs> well, I'm doing as well as can be expected, it's a kind of cloudy, gloomy day here after some storms yesterday. But uh, other than that, okay. And thanks for having me on, by the way. And never too late for an invitation. I'm good to go anytime that you guys need me, if at all possible. See, these are my kind of people. So, um, <laughs> Greg, to get more serious, I know the biggest talk um, right now around the Titans is DeAndre Hopkins. We saw the Instagram post that he made where it showed that he was in you know, Tennessee. And I guess my question is, how real is this thing? Because from the outside looking in, it's like, why would a player at his age, at his caliber, go to a team that maybe doesn't have a clear quarterback, you know, um, thing going on? But I do know I do know he has relationships there and that might matter. So how real is this? Well, I think certainly on the Titans part, it's real. Uh Obviously, they need another receiver. Now, Traylon Burks has really stepped up in this training camp, looks really good, playing with a lot of confidence. He uh, appears to be set to take a big stride from his rookie season a year ago to this year. But after that, it's a little bit shaky and a lot questionable about what they've got in this room. So I think they're serious about it. And I think certainly if they can get him at a price that they are comfortable with, they want to do it. The question is, as you said, if he wants a ring, these other things, is Hopkins willing to come here? He does have a great relationship with Mike Vrabel. He said as much uh, from their time together when Vrabel was a coach in Houston and he was playing there. So that is a draw. Obviously, money is going to be part of it. But just where is Hopkins in all of this? And that's really what none of us really know at this point. And then the other big thing is the quarterback position, similar to what we're dealing with in Indianapolis, there isn't a clearer picture just yet. So how has Will Levis looked throughout OTAs and what can we expect from that, I guess, position battle, if it is one, or is it still Ryan Tannehill's um, to, to hold on to for now? It's Ryan Tannehill's show at this point. Uh, Levis has had his moments, as I'm sure you guys have seen with Richardson there, uh, where they play well, they do a lot of things right. Certainly we know the talent is there. 
but they're rookies. They're learning. They've moved to a new city. They're learning new coaches, new playbook, new players, new receivers. All these things around them are different than what they're accustomed to. So he's had his moments of good and his moments of bad, but it's Ryan Tannehill's show, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be his show this season until and if he is injured or certainly if this team flatlines and is just terrible out of the gate and loses four or five in a row. Uh, we could see a move to Levis to go ahead and get him in and get him some game experience as a rookie. But for now, everybody here is under the assumption, and Tannehill has looked really good uh, in practice, that he's going to be the guy. Greg, when I look at the Titans, over the cap as I'm listed is about $8 million or so with cap space available in 2023. But if I'm DeAndre Hopkins, when I look at the Titans, I see an opportunity to work with people that I've worked with before. I see an opportunity to get a little bit of money I don't see, from our vantage point, a path to a ring in Tennessee. Now, that being said, the Titans flirted with, up until the very end, the AFC South title last year. Obviously, Jacksonville winds up winning the division and makes it to the divisional round. But when the Titans are looking within themselves and looking at this locker room, do they still see a real championship window there? Because that's the only reason to me why I would think of to bring DeAndre Hopkins in. I think they do as far as the AFC South. Now, I don't think anybody in their right mind is going to say this team is of of Super Bowl caliber. But let's look at it this way. Last year, it went down to the final game, the Titans and the Jags in Jacksonville. Tennessee had Josh Dobbs starting at quarterback, who had literally been here two weeks. And it took a fumble return touchdown in the final three minutes of that game at Jacksonville for the Jaguars to put away a Tennessee team that had an offense that wasn't much better than the three of us would have been playing with. (laughs) I mean, it was absolutely pathetic. They had a left tackle that couldn't block air. Uh, A quarterback, as I mentioned, in Dobbs that had been there for only two weeks and still managed to hang in there. This defense, I think, is going to be pretty good. Uh, it's been good. It was 11th ranked over the course of the NFL season last year overall. Now, they did struggle past defense-wise, but getting some players healthy, and I think they've added a couple of good players here in Aziz Outshire, the linebacker that came over from San Francisco, and then Sean Murphy Bunning, the cornerback that joined from Tampa Bay as free agent. So I think the defense is good enough to keep them in games. The question is, is this rebuilt offensive line going to be able to do the job to allow Derrick Henry to run the football first, which is what the Titans want to do, and then Ryan Tannehill protect him enough that he can – implement what they're doing now in the passing game, which is kind of going away from as much play-action passing and going to more of the short, controlled passing game. Greg, does this feel like it is the Jaguars' division to run? Do you feel like they're just a, a level above the rest of the division, or is this a situation where we might see – I mean, it's hard for me to see it, but do you just think that – you know, this is uh, Trevor Lawrence's, you know, uh, I guess, uh, party. Well, I think certainly on paper they're the defending champs. You have to rank them number one. But as I just mentioned, it took a third or a fourth quarter, yeah. rather, scoop and score touchdown with about three minutes left in the game for the Jags a year ago to put away the Titans in Jacksonville. So, no, I don't think they're head and shoulders above everybody else. Now, obviously – We don't know what their draft class is doing to improve that team and what their free agent additions are doing, not being there in Jacksonville to watch it. 
They should be some better, but I don't see them as head and shoulders above the rest of the class other than the Texans, of course. I think the Colts defensively have a good group, at least from what I remember from last year. I honestly haven't gone too in-depth into it yet. And I think the Titans' defense are good enough to compete. It's what they do on offense with Richardson in Indianapolis, who's probably going to be the guy, and what the Titans can do about refixing this offensive line that was just a disaster last year, and do they have enough receivers to make this thing work? If Richardson pans out in Indianapolis, if those things happen in Tennessee, I think both those teams can be there and battle the Jags. Now, will they win the division? I'm not going to say that, but I don't think it's a runaway for Jacksonville in this thing at all. Oh, man, I like that. You know, because I just like – competition and football is finicky you know sometimes it feels like you might think a team is so much better but then you play the game and you see you realize it's not always the case one thing I do want to hit on though is you talked about a little bit Mike Vrabel his relationship building it seems like for whatever reason every year no matter who's on that roster he gets the most out of them I know a lot of coaches talk about that it becomes a cliche but I think it's real with Mike Vrabel and why do you think that is and why is it that he seems to have always had the Colts' number in recent years which obviously is not making Jim Irsay very happy well there's two things one he's been there done that this is a guy that played in the league not that long ago most of the players coming in today either were old enough to have seen him play or certainly close enough that they can go back and reference that. And then it's just his personality. All the guys say he is a player's coach. He gets it. He can relate. Now, he's tough on rookies. When you get him on the practice field and we watched he's been uh, on Jalen Duncan the last couple of practices that the media has been present for, the rookie uh, tackle out of Maryland. Mm -hmm. But they really like this kid and his potential. But Vrabel and Traylon Burke said this. He was kind of the whipping boy last year for Vrabel in practice. But now that he's moved into his second year, it's more of a friendly coach-player relationship. He's not as hard on him. And the players like that, and they gravitate towards it. And we've heard that from these veteran free agents that the team have signed when they got here and got to sit down and talk to Mike and, and kind of deal with him and understand where he's coming from. And, again, of course, as I said, having been there, done that uh, – It's just easy for him to be a player's coach and these guys to like him. And one stat I'll throw out with you about Vrabel before we go further, he has more touchdown receptions in his NFL career than anybody on the Titans receiver core presently. (laughs) So that's a funny stat for everybody. (laughs) That is a funny stat. That is insane. And a real real mark. against the Titans receiving quarters. Goodness gracious. Hey, can't go anywhere from up at this point, though. Greg, Greg Arias joins us here on the Fan Midday Show, covers the Titans on alltitans.com from Sports Illustrated. Nice stuff to make a few moments with us. Greg, what's this season going to be like for Derrick Henry? 29 years old, entering what could potentially be the final season with the Titans, given the way the contract works out and the avoidable years wouldn't be all that costly over the next two seasons that the Titans decide to go that route. I know it was linked to trade rumors very early in the offseason, but he's been there. He's been suiting up throughout these OTAs. What's the evaluation for both Derrick Henry and the Titans side of things as a 29-year-old enters this season? Well, from the Derrick Henry side of things, he's the same old beast of a human. The guy is the biggest linebacker on this football team, <laughs> bar none. Uh, and, I mean, no, seriously, he is – you guys have seen him. He's yeah. just a massive human. When you stand next to him, 
to be a running back, you think of running backs as more of the maybe six foot, you know, 220, 225, that range. No, he's bigger than all that. He looks great. He's still got the speed. Uh, The way he trains and takes care of his body is second to none. And he's not an issue. The issue with him with the Titans is what do the Titans, as you mentioned, want to do with him moving forward? Because I don't think that 30-year-old mark is going to play as much of an issue with him as it does with other running backs, at least at this time. Now, obviously, injuries, we don't know what's going to happen there. He could blow out a knee in week one, and and that'd be the end of the thing. But if he stays healthy, he's the same Derrick Henry. He's not lost anything from what we see on the practice squad. And he's catching the football as well, if not better, than we've seen him during his time here. And I think with Tim Kelly coming in for Todd Downing in the offense, they want to use him more, not necessarily as a receiver, but as a weapon catching the football out of the backfield. Because let's face it, if you're a 195-pound cornerback, you've got a decision to make when that guy's coming at you with a full head of steam. Do you want to try to tackle him or do you want to save your life? (laughs) I don't know, man. I think I want to save my life. I saw this. (laughs) There's a question I saw online where it was like, do you think given 100 chances – that you could get Derrick Henry on the ground in Oklahoma drill? No. No, uh, no I'm not even going to try. Because I, <laughs> as I said, I've stood next to this guy several times. In fact, the first time I ever stood next to him was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the night after he broke the all-time high school career rushing mark. We were down there for the Alabama-Texas A&M game, the Johnny Manziel game where they beat Bama that year in Tuscaloosa. And Henry, Laramie Tunsil, O.J. Howard, some of the top players in the country were there. And this kid walked in, and I'm standing with Kirby Smart. And I thought that was him, but I hadn't really seen a good picture of him. I said, is that the running back? He said, yeah, that's Derrick Henry. And I'm like, okay, this guy could play tackle here right now. He's not just a running back. And this was when he was 17. So, obviously, you can imagine after this many years in the league what he's done. He's just uh, he, he's just something Freakish. I guess that's probably the only and best way to describe what this guy is because just the way he works and the way he takes care of himself. The last thing I'll ask about him in particular is how much do you think he wants to stave off the, oh, he's getting old, oh, he's not the same, because we dealt with some of that on the Colts beat last year where Stephon Gilmore was like, wait a second, I'm still one of the best in the game at this, and how much do you think that fuels Derrick Henry in the same vein? He won't say it. He spoke to the media last week during the minicamp for the first time. Uh, He had not taken any interviews coming off the field or anything else. He was off limits. But last week when he spoke, he wouldn't even address it. I've still worked the same. I'm still doing the same things that I've been doing. I still feel the same. Nothing has changed. That's his attitude. I don't think he thinks he's anything other than the best running back in the league. And obviously that's debatable. But certainly we know he's in the top two or three, uh, if not number one, because of what he's been able to do so I don't think he has any thoughts of anything other than hey I'm going to go out here and play football the way I play football and I'm going to produce and that's just it and whatever happens happens that is not what Colts fans want to hear they probably want to hear that he's declining or he's not the same guy that he's been the last few years but Greg Arias thank you so much for your time make sure you follow his work at alltitans.com and I'll make sure to see you this season man it should be a fun one absolutely look forward to it and again thanks for having me on and glad to do it anytime all right. Thanks, Greg. That was Greg Arias. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Arias Sports. 
great dude. I mean, someone who obviously came in the clutch, like I said, when I messaged him this morning to come on our show. And I think that he provided a great insight as to what's going on at the quarterback position. Jimmy, I know we talk a lot about the rookies, but it isn't as clear as it's been for Bryce Young compared to everyone else. I know Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, we would assume, are going to be week one starters. Anthony Richardson, I would probably push into that same group. You know, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me. Will Levis is at a different time in his career as far as – not a different time, but different place as far as the depth chart. But um, it sounds like Ryan Tannehill still wants to prove that he's the guy over there. And maybe that's best for Will Levis to learn from him and then eventually take the reins. I'm happy for Ryan Tannehill in that regard. When he arrived in Tennessee, there were high question marks for what kind of quarterback he was going to be Truly, in this league. yeah. And you can point to him now as a reclamation project to some extent where if one spot for a quarterback out of the gate as a rookie or as a couple-year veteran doesn't work out, you can find a new home somewhere else. He was able to do that, and he's thrived there. I've said for years, I think it's capped on what he can ultimately do there. Mm -hmm. And from the DeAndre Hopkins conversation that we just had there with Greg, I don't know why Hopkins would go there other than familiarity and hey, if it's a full $8 million one-year deal and that's the end of the cap space that the Titans have, obviously it gets finicky when you get that close to the margins, but if that's what he wants, okay, very happy for him. There's more. There's other places you could go to get more money, and there's other places you could go to certainly give you a better shot at winning a Super Bowl championship. I know Greg kind of joked this there that, well, they could win the South, but that's not what I'm shooting for at this point in my career. If winning is what matters to me, if I'm DeAndre Hopkins, I want to go ahead and win a Vince Lombardi trophy. I want to be on a championship team. Patrick Mahomes, hit me up. I mean, you mentioned Mahomes. We mentioned Josh Allen. Just the cap space isn't really there. If he wants the best of both worlds, I mean, the Bengals have cap space to operate with. But again, that's a very, very crowded wide receiver room. Yes. But you'd be asking less of him at that point if you were to inject him in there. There's other places as well. We're not going to go into it this segment, but there's other spots where he could go to have a better shot at winning a championship. There's other spots he'd go to make more money. I don't get Tennessee other than he has ties with some of the staff. He has ties with Vrabel. He has ties with those that are in that building. And that matters to players. I just I would have thought it was money or championship was his 1A, 1B type of mindset going into this free agency. Yeah, I think if the Titans ultimately land him, that speaks to how close he is with Mike Vrabel and how much that relationship means to him because that, to me, would be the deciding factor. Like you said, other than that, it doesn't seem like a very enticing spot. You get a lot of balls thrown your way, but obviously it depends on who's throwing them too because even at – even if Ryan Tannehill is back, not saying he won't be back, but I'm saying if he's the starter and he's the guy who's going to be back there, it's not like he's a prolific thrower of the football. And so, I don't know. It's 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 a weird position to be in for DeAndre Hopkins because you have to weigh money, you know, opportunity, but also it's sort of your resume for the rest of the league. You want to show people that you can still play. Too. So you, if you go somewhere and whether it's on the quarterback or not and you don't catch a lot of pass, you don't really have a, a good season, then that kind of lowers your value for the next season. So um, these are all things he has to weigh. But I do find it interesting that he is kind of fanning the flames a little bit with putting his location on Instagram and showing people. It's like showing the uh, – the girl you really want, what you're doing with the girl that you just kind of like. And it's like, okay, like other teams with more money, this is what I'm thinking about right now. Is it just like a cat and mouse game or is he serious about it? We'll find out soon enough. But um, I do think that 
for the Colts' sake if they don't end up with D-Hop, which, again, I don't think will happen in any lifetime uh, as far as him coming to Indy. But you would want him to go elsewhere outside of your division because you don't want your, your division to get better when you're trying to get better and get your footing. Or maybe you do because you kind of you know want a, a high pick right. next year. So we'll see. I just think that whatever happens with the Titans, get DeAndre Hopkins or not, if the Colts don't find a way to beat that team this upcoming season, Jim Irsay might like break the glass in the press box because he is so like gung ho about beating that team and just not getting manhandled. Which again, I think that Mike Vrabel gets the most out of his players, and it doesn't look pretty. But gosh darn it, do they find a way to win some ugly games? That's James Boyd. I'm Jay Cook. Eddie Garrison with us here as well. When we return, sometimes when your backs are against the wall, you got to break glass in case of emergency. That's happened just a few moments ago. We'll discuss when we come back on The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Quickly here to close the first hour on the Fan Midday Show, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, and Eddie Garrison. Time to break that glass in case of emergency. Miami's Tyler Hero been upgraded to questionable, and per Adrian Wojnarowski, expected to suit up for Game 5 and attempt to return tonight. Does it matter? What about Udonis Haslam? I think if you put Udonis Haslam in there, you win. Tyler Hero. That's the Jokic stopper. There you go. But no, in all seriousness, no, I don't think it matters too much. I think that Denver is just the better team. That's where I'm at with it. Saw a little bit of warm-up video from shoot-around at this point. Again, you can't really get a clear evaluation from that, but doesn't look like any pain or discomfort from Tyler Hero. I get what you're doing. Backs are against the wall. You need to, at this point, have every man available if possible. But no, I don't think it changes one way or another how this series goes. I tell you, as a competitor, though, and as petty as it sounds, I'm smacking the heck out of his hand just to see how good it feels. <laughs> like, seriously, if you don't come out there if it's not, you know, good. Because as a competitor, I'm going to test that hand and see how it feels. Just to let you know, I'm willing to win by any means necessary. Not dirty, but just, honestly, it's gamesmanship. Look, I admire it, but it's very fitting for us that that's how the first hour ends with a dose of pettiness to get us set for the rest of the afternoon. Still to come, a brief change. We were going to have Marcus Thompson on, but had a scheduling conflict. So hopefully we'll get him a little bit down the line in the lead up to the NBA draft or as the NBA finals roll along. But Shane Young coming off the bench Going to join us for a little bit, covers the NBA at large for Forbes and a couple of different spots. We'll get his takeaways from the NBA Finals so far, Tyler Hero's return, and if it ends tonight in Denver with the Nuggets capturing their first championship in franchise history. We'll have that when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Still hanging out in the DriveHubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison, we'll talk NBA here with Shane Young covers the NBA at large for Forbes. Shane, before I get into... The NBA Finals, I have to ask, what was it like to play pickup basketball with Jamal Crawford? <laughs> James, man, I can't. I know you saw that. That was that was crazy. Um, well, I, I guess to set the scene real quick, like I pull up to the 
to the facility in an Uber, and I get out, and I'm just waiting to see where the entrance is, right? And then I see Jamal pull up, too. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, we're we're in for some damage today, man. Like, it's about to be crazy. But, hey, I got to say, I don't know if it's just, like, the retired players just, playing, you know, not wanting to go all out, but, like, he was passing everything. Like, he wasn't shooting as much as you think he would. So, pretty fun. Pretty fun experience. Final score? Oh, his team didn't lose a game. Okay, so, that's what I, mean, I just want to make sure. And, and I, I was on the team for two of those, so. Two dubs. That's right. That's nice. right, Shane. You get those dubs. <laughs> There's a video on Twitter. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Shane Young, NBA. You can see that Jamal Crawford gives him a compliment on the jumper, which is like so cool. <laughs> but I know you're not there only for play. You're there to work as well. Yeah. And as you've worked these NBA finals, what impressed you the most about last game, particularly in the nine Jokic minutes where it felt like if Miami was going to do something, that was the time to do it, and it felt like that was a championship moment for the Nuggets. Yeah, it's a really good point because I think in in prior playoff uh, runs, whenever Jokic has to go to the bench, whether it's rest or um, foul trouble like it was the other night, they really don't have a plan. Like, there's no action. Uh, you can see they look like deer in the headlights, and, and you know they kind of go into prevent offense where they're just trying to uh, survive instead of thrive. And I think that's what Aaron Gordon said. Like, we want to thrive in the minutes. We don't just want to be out there and, and go even or maybe lose them by a few points. We want to win those minutes. And I think it's it's knowing, you know, getting into your first action, if nothing's there, get into the next one. And Jamal Murray's been really the captain of that. I mean, the way he manipulates the game uh, from the point guard spot, just in pick and roll, DHOs, dribble handoffs, or, or anything. I mean, he is like an extension of Michael Malone on the floor, and that's a big step forward for someone that's been out for two years, and I think, or a year and a half, whatever he was out for with the ACL. And I think that's that's kind of you hear Paul George talk about that too. That, that's kind of like a, a a benefit being on the sidelines and being in the film sessions and not being able to play. You kind of observe things from a coach's perspective, and I think he's just a really really good manager of the game now so i get all the credit to jamal murray and aaron gordon for keeping the offense flowing shane one guy who has also picked it up the last few games and deserves i believe a ton of credit especially given the struggle of mpj is bruce brown yeah how have you seen his game grow and maybe his confidence as well because the things that he is doing throughout this series throughout this playoff run really are very impressive and probably be putting him out of the Nuggets' is price range going forward, but yeah. this guy is looking like, you know, I will do anything to win. He's been doing anything to win. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, he might be the only NBA player right now. I mean, maybe, well, I guess LeBron is the other one, maybe. And I guess Jokic, if you want to say that, the only player that can really, or that has played every position. I mean, this dude was asked to be a small ball five in Brooklyn setting screens, mm-hmm. rolling, making plays out of the short roll, uh, being that playmaker. Um, and then now he comes to Denver. Now he's kind of more in that 2-3 role, but can he, he can also guard up to fours if you need him to. Like, the guy is just so switchable. Um, and, and I say that having known that he came into Detroit as, as like a point guard. Like, the, Detroit was wanting him to be like, you know, run some point minutes. And it was just, it was crazy. I mean, this guy has, been, has done everything for his team's and I think it's the it's the it's being malleable like that. You don't win in this league. You don't win in, in basketball. Period. But especially in the NBA, if you are just like 
pigeonholed into one thing. You have to be able to expand your skill sets. And I think, you know, people look at the shaky shooting for Bruce Brown and, you know, oh, can he make open shots whenever Jokic and Murray get doubled or they attract all that attention? I mean, he has been. And if he's not, he's, he's, he's cutting. He's taking advantage of that space of, of defenders laying off of him. I mean, this dude is crashing the boards. I think you're right. Like, he might have priced himself out of the Nuggets range, but it, you, you've seen this many times in sports and in the leagues you cover. Like, if a guy really loves it in, in a certain spot, you know, I'm sure his agent is going to be encouraging him to go and take the money for sure. But um, if he loves this team and, and he's just a per- picture-perfect fit for them, um, I could see a long-term situation here. Shane, what is the Miami Heat activating Tyler Hero and he potentially going in tonight's Game 5, assuming he does, assuming there's no inflammation or no irritation that's caused in the wrist through warm-ups and everything tonight. Does that change anything? What, if anything, does it add to Miami in terms of the ways they could attack Denver? Or is this just a, you get it, it's an elimination game, all hands on deck, break the glass in case of emergency, let's see what he's got. Yep, I think uh, to the latter right there, that that is definitely what it is. It's I think with Spo, especially Spo's teams, man, you don't leave any card on the table. You have to play everything because what happens if they get you know they they don't play Tyler Hero and there's always going to be that what if like you know what if we had some extra juice? What if we had some extra firepower? Maybe we let that final slip away. You know maybe they could have won a couple games. Um, now I on the other hand, like I, I just look at things like defensively. I, I, you know, especially with him having a sore hand, and he saw his irritation like after he, he gets done with warm-ups. I saw his hand getting uh, taped up the other day before practice. Um, you just tell that like, it still bothers him, but he'll have to put, play through pain if he does play. But I think Denver will just target him, not because of the hand, but because he's small. Like, he's just a small guard. And, man, you put that guy in pick-and-roll actions. I think, I think it's going to cause more problems for Miami, but at the same time, you have to just play. You have to lay it on the line. This is game five, down 3-1. You can't go into the offseason thinking, man, maybe Tyler could have given us 25 points tonight. I think that you make a great point. So my next question is, how does Miami lure Jokic away from the arena tonight? Because <laughs> I just feel like he didn't really have a great game last game. Yeah. And the great ones don't have – you know, pedestrian, if I, if I can even call 23 and 12 pedestrian, it's for him, I guess. They don't have two of those games in a row. So how do you expect... You mean he's not picking up a fifth foul tonight in Denver? That's I don't think so. Okay. And right. I, I, I truly think that he was frustrated with the way that he played. Yeah. And to be serious about it, Shane, how much do you think he will seize the moment tonight to close it out? I know they've mm-hmm. talked about don't want to get ahead of themselves, but now you're not ahead of yourself. You're right there. Yeah, like that's part of what you just said. I'm I'm partly like laughing every time Michael Malone or someone says we have to act like we're down three one. Like, come on! Like, you know that <laughs> you know you're the better team. You know you're on the on the cusp of of making history for your franchise. Like, I, it's okay to get a little excited, but you know they're just trying to like temper everyone's expectations and kind of like keep everyone even killed. But I think. Um, you're right. Like Jokic had a pedestrian offensive game. Now I thought he was great on defense. Like this dude is second in play in total playoff deflections. To- second behind Jimmy Butler. Like it's just crazy. Like you know he's not going to get all the blocks, although he got like two or three of the night. But it's the rim protection. It's 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 being able to drop back 
And it's the kicked and, balls as well. Like that. I mean, yeah. they get the ball back, but that's stopping a play. Yeah, exactly. Like Bam and these guys, guys that are super aggressive. Like they're they're seeing Jokic in his seven foot frame and his big body and his long arms, and they're kind of getting deterred from taking shots. Like that's not going to show up in the stat sheet, but that is a win on that possession every time Miami gets spooked within ten feet. So I, I think tonight, you know, I think the other night, we, James, we saw that uh, Denver or Miami tried to go all out against Jamal Murray, blitzing him on like like twenty five, thirty pick and rolls. It seemed like they blitzed him on, and that opened up the cuts for Bruce Brown and and KCP and Aaron Gordon. I think tonight, you just I think Miami's going to try to play more straight up traditional, and that's and that's whenever Jokic gets cooking, right? Like you play traditional against him, he's either going to get a switch against a small guard and you're dead. Or he's just going to catch the ball in the pocket, either on a, on a pop or on the roll, and hit that floater. Which I got to tell you, man, like I, I I know you've covered ball a long time. I have too, but like I don't think I've seen a guy with that special touch. Yes, within, within twelve feet, like the mid range. Like of course, like he'll make or miss. Like that that is what it is. But like in the floater range, he can get the softest bounces when he just floats it up there. He has such a unique release. Me, me and Jimmy talked about this. His shots always roll in. They never roll out. No. Yeah. I've never seen that before. Like It's basically like it's a magnet on the rim. He just puts it up there, and then it goes, and he just shuffles back down the court. And I'm like, how do you shoot 70% during a game or something like that, and you don't dunk? That is insane touch. But, Jimmy, go ahead. I'm sorry. You're all right. Good. Oh, I was gonna say I asked uh, I asked Michael Malone is that is that touch something that you can be that, that you can teach as a coaching staff because they had him for eight years now they've had Nikola Ryogic for eight years he said well we do have great player development staffs like, and we have we have great personnel you have to give the credit where credit is due and that's something that he learned in Serbia that's something that has always been with him so you know the Nugget staff is not taking credit for his efficiency for sure. Shane Young with us, covers the NBA for Forbes. You can find him on Forbes.com, out for Game 5 of the NBA Finals. When you look back at Game 4, Shane, Miami has 14 turnovers. They lose the shot volume battle between them and Denver. Obviously, they lose the game as well. But those 14 turnovers, which were pretty disparaging compared to how Miami is taking care of the basketball for the majority of this yeah. postseason. How much of that was adjustments done by Denver? How much of that was just sloppy play by Miami or just a little bit of both in your eyes? A little bit of both. I think the indecision of Jimmy Butler, um, the uh, lack of aggression and you know, he would argue with you every time you say that he argue or you question his aggressiveness and his assertiveness as a driver. He always comes back and says like, Man, like I'm just making the right play for my teammates. I'm not going to shoot 30 shots. Like I made the right play. You don't you can't criticize that. And I understand it, but at the same time, you're down two one the other night in a in a game four, like with the potential to go down three one, which they did. Like you have to lay it all on the line. I think that he's just not attacking as much as he should. I think he's stopping short, getting caught in traffic. And, you know, the turnovers aren't all him. Like, Bam, obviously, getting stripped by Jokic. I mean, that is what that it is. That was you a huge credit. play, yeah. Yeah, you have to credit the defense there. You can't really say, like, Bam could have done anything better. I mean, sometimes great great instincts just went out. But, um, it, you know, Miami's just not creating enough good looks. And to that point, I mean, Denver's rotations are, are crisp on point. This reminded me a lot of the um, – this has reminded me a lot of the Nuggets-Sun series where – you know, it's competitive for three quarters, but 
Denver is just locking down in, in ways that the opposition can't. And I think, um, you know, if, if Miami's shooters are not going to get going, and it's not just it's not just making the shots, like it's getting enough open looks. I don't think they're getting those. In game one and two they did, but um, since then they have not. So, hey, Denver's half-court defense, something that we all criticized for about four years now, and we said they're not going to be able to build a championship contender around that. Uh, we all look crazy right now. So here is my pivot. Jimmy Butler, Miami Heat, if they don't get this done, which it looks like it probably won't happen, how should this season from him in particular be remembered, not only, I guess, for this year, but for his career? Because Jimmy Butler is one of those rare playoff Mm -hmm. risers, and he might do it better. I'm not saying better as far as he's a better player, than other guys in the playoffs, but I don't know if anybody makes a bigger leap from regular season yeah. to playoffs than him in this era. Uh, you funny, it's funny you say that because guess who I just wrote that about the other day? Jamal Murray. I think Jamal Murray makes the biggest leap. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> for, for regular season I mean, I, I guess my only thing with Jamal is, is he's been hurt the last few years, so it's like yeah, I don't know if yeah. he would have been this had he been healthy. But I, I get it. Both guys have similar narratives for sure. Yeah. So with Jimmy. Like it's interesting because he doesn't care about like the All NBA and the All Star stuff, and that's largely why he I, he made it this year. But largely why he gets left off of those discussions. When's the last time you ever heard him in MVP talks? Never, right? Never. Mm-hmm. Just just never happened. I think for him, it's it's about conserving the energy during the season and maximizing the playoffs. I think Jimmy's legacy. Assuming they lose this championship, this, this finals, assuming, let's just assume he never gets back to the finals for the sake of argument. I think his legacy is going to be someone that is able to soak or is able to, is able to get as much uh, success out of the talent he's been given around him, right? Like, I think this Heat team has maximized what it's been able to. I think it's just, it's squeezed all the juice out of what it can possibly do. I don't think anyone thinks this Heat this team is a championship team. Yet they're the eight seed, yet they're here in the finals. So anything could happen, right? But I think, you know, even looking back at that 2020 Heat run, zero people picked that team who was the four seed to make the finals. I, I think they beat the Pacers in the first round, right? Like, like that, that team just wasn't, that this wasn't a great team, yet they made the finals and were two wins from a championship. So Jimmy is, is good enough to, to elevate your team to that moment, I just don't think he he's at the Dwayne Wade level where he could lift the Heat to a championship, which he did in 08 or 06. So I don't. I think he's somewhere in between there. It's like, yeah, he's a great playoff performer, but he's not that tier one A guy where he can lift you over the top. If that makes sense. Shane, we've talked a lot about teams that are in situations like the Pacers are where you look at a team like Denver in particular and how they were able to build things highly through the draft and then pick and choose the type of free agents they wanted to some extent or find high value and the trades they made as well. When you look at the two crown jewels of that set, and we'll leave Michael Porter Jr. out of it, even though at the time there were question marks when he was drafted, but you looked at it from afar, it's like, man, if he can get his health in order, it's a great piece for Denver. Let's leave him out of it. Let's just look at Jamal Murray, and let's look at Nikola Jokic, and you mentioned it. It's taken time for them to get to this point. What is this overall potential championship coronation tonight say about the patience needed at times in this league that we often don't give it 
and the overall ability for smaller market teams to be able to capitalize. I get it. I know Jokic is a once-in-a-generation talent, and where they found him is not going to be repeated, but you can have success in the draft to a point where patience does need to be practiced. Totally right. It's an awesome point because this is now the second championship in the last three years that, that what you just described has been demonstrated. The Bucks. This is just as this is right up the Bucks alley. This is identical to their title. Like you have the best player in the world at that time, which Giannis was. You bring in new pieces, Aaron Gordon for Denver, Drew Holiday for Milwaukee. I mean it's it, it's literally a carbon copy of of staying true to yourself. And I think the biggest thing that teams need to take away from this finals is it's all about, it's all about trial and error. So we saw the iteration of of the Bucks that couldn't get over the top, right? Malcolm Brogdon, like that 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 core unit that that was there. They bring in Brook Lopez, like they're able to win, uh, you know, building around a, a elite defense. It takes a few different tweaks. It, it's not going to happen in years one through five. It probably won't happen in one in years one through five of a situation like Denver and Milwaukee. It's going to take like seven or eight years. And I think you have, as fans, as analysts, as owners, everyone, you just don't have eight years of patience. You maybe have three or four before you want to make large changes. I just think it, this is proving that you need to tweak things around the margins until you get it right. You 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 figure out who your centerpiece is. Jokic is pretty much equivalent to Giannis. I think Jokic is the best in the world now, but those guys can go back and forth as one and two. Um you figure out what your core piece is, and then you figure out, okay, what is going to fit around them. And and I think it, it's it's perfect to consult with those guys. Like, hey, what do you think the archetype of player that we can bring in? And I'm sure Jokic had a, a big say in Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, all these guys that they filled out the roster with. Shane, I believe if and when Jokic wins this finals MVP He'll be the first center to win it since Tim Duncan, which we consider a power forward. He played center that season, 2005. And then before that, if you want to go, yeah, and then if you want to go true, true center, it's like Shaq. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at his resume, you add a championship to that resume. Where does that put him as far as the conversation for best big men ever? I'm not saying. We have to have all of these, um, you know, finalities today. But I do think that he gets a championship. You have to put him in the conversation because of the stuff that he's doing and the efficiency it comes with, the playmaking ability, you know, with the assists and things like that. We've never seen this before. I get it. You know, Shaq, we never saw him before. But it's dominance to that level, but just in a different way. Yeah. We've never seen this before age 28, 29. Yeah. Like, I, think that's, I think that's the biggest thing is, like, you know, to win at this level, to have two MVPs at this level, it's just unprecedented that the guy just turned 28. Um, and in the way, you know, he's not, his game is not reliant on athleticism. So, I mean, this dude could be around for a long time depending on how much he loves the game and how much he wants to be around. Um, I think that's what's fascinating about, like, the international plays. Like, all these guys play so differently that – you just never know what you're going to get from year to year, and that's that's great about the sport. The sport's in great hands with a guy like Jokic, but I think to your point, if he or when he wins the Finals MVP this year, it's like, man, it gets really hard to kind of align him with the all-time greats because you know he's only played eight years. Like, 
the 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 raw numbers just aren't there. The county numbers, like in terms of averages, are there for sure, and the MVPs and all the accolades are going to be there. But it's like, do you need a little bit more time? I would argue you don't. I think I think he's like a, a bona fide top twenty guy just from his resume. Like, and then you tack on that if you just give him six more healthy years, which he's going to have six more healthy years, then you're going to see his name rising up the leaderboards and 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 some of the you know, career numbers. And then it gets really dicey because then you get uncomfortable with like, man, is he better than Shaq? It does. Is he greater than Shaq? Um, you know, Shaq and Hakeem Olajuwon are probably like right around the eight, nine, 10, 11 mark in terms of all time guys. Um, I saw something floating around the other day, James, about how like he's unequivocally better than KD if he wins this. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm pumping the brakes there. Like Kevin Durant's been, been around for what? 17 years, 16 yeah. years now. Like, I'm pumping the brakes there. I, you know, I, I don't diminish his finals MVPs the way other people do on the internet. I think that's ludicrous. He earned those. But it, I, I do think that you're going to have the conversation pretty quickly about, you know, where is Jokic better than these all time bigs? Like, like Charles Barkley, a good power forward, but never, never done the, never had the success that Jokic is having right now. No, one of my favorite lines to say in these types of conversations is, if Jokic retired tomorrow, he'd be a Hall of Famer. Okay, I get it. You know, want to have counting stats, longevity, but I have always leaned more toward what have you done in the time you were given, and in yeah. these eight seasons, he has been absolutely think- magnificent for like the last four or five. So, yes, I do think that he um, will be in that conversation if he stays healthy, but um, I have no problem saying that he belongs in that conversation right now because yeah. in a vacuum my goodness that guy is really good i think i think people were grappling with that with steph too like when steph won his like third title like forget the fourth one but when he won his third title like he was only like 31 or maybe mm-hmm. 30 something like that like i mean and then you look at the numbers like this guy was already the three-point god this guy was uh averaging crazy numbers in the playoffs despite not having a final mvp and people were like is he a top 10 guy? I was calling him a top 10 guy, but other people thought I was crazy because he hadn't put in the 15 years of service that you need. And, and now Steph's at like eight or uh, year 14 or 13, 14, whatever it is. And now it's unequivocally he's like one of the seven to 10 best ever. Shane, what happens out east as all this clears up? Again, assuming that it's a Denver coronation, what happens with the Eastern Conference? What happens with Miami moving forward as they try to remember with good memories what this run has been and how sensational it's been, but ultimately back to the drawing board in an Eastern Conference that has an identity crisis to some extent, but you could expect bounce backs likely from Milwaukee and Boston just to name two teams yeah. right off the bat. Got some coaching changes. Milwaukee, uh, Philly, brand new coaches coming in. So I think the East is really up in the air. Like You have no idea who's going to come in. I, I do think that, you know, God, I know Heat fans are tired of hearing this, but I think Boston just has a really big advantage coming into next year because they know what they did wrong. They know Joe Mazzulla knows what he did wrong. They shored up that coaching staff. They hired a few new uh, assistants to help him along the way, the guys that have been on staff for a while now. Um, and they lost in heartbreaking fashion, like just disgusting fashion. Like they should have beaten the Heat. I mean, I will still say, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in the minority, but the Celtics are the better team. Like they just, they choked it away. And, I think them having the most stability coming in because they don't they didn't make a coaching change. They're gonna keep their core unit, I think. Like I don't really foresee them breaking up the Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum tandem. I don't think they should. Uh, I think that team comes back even more motivated. Um 
Philly is going to be really interesting because they could, I mean, they could go a number of ways with James Harden's impending free agency or whatever in the world he's he's thinking about doing. I I don't know why you would consider going back to Houston. <laughs> oh, I know why. And so, oh I know yeah, why. I think we, uh, we we definitely know why. But uh, <laughs> I, I, for for a career standpoint, I I don't understand that. So, man, I'm just fascinated to see what happens. Uh, Maybe you know some sleeper teams come out of the East. Maybe Toronto gets back on track for the new coach, a new Serbian head coach that Jokic really vouched uh, for yesterday in media. So I don't know, man. I, I, I think Miami is going to be back in the shuffle. I don't think they're going to be an eight seed next year. I think they figured out like their identity with this core shooters around Jimmy and Bam pick and roll for sure. That's going to work moving forward. But I don't think if you ask me to say, I don't think Miami is going to be this good in terms of a final seed next year. So, Shane, before I let you go, I have to ask, if Miami needs you, will you be ready <laughs> to suit up? I mean, I'm just saying, Tyler Hero, his hand, I know your hands will be feeling pretty good, you know, playing pickup Jamal Crawford, typing up these stories. You're the last card to be played, Shane. I mean, hey. Oh, I got to say, I, I, not to sound cocky, but I think I can knock down a couple shots in the game, <laughs> but here's the problem. Here's the problem, James. Third possession of the game, I'm winded. I can't handle this altitude. I can't do it. It, it, We're done. Now, if this was in South Beach, I could deal with it. But, man, I'm going to need Malone. I'm going to need Spolster to pull me after the third play of the game. Okay, well, I just expect a first-person column of your NBA Finals debut after tonight. But uh, jokes aside, my man, enjoy the finals. Like I said, I'm proud of you. I appreciate you coming on as always, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, James. You have a good one, man. All right, that is Shane Young, covers the NBA at large for Forbes. You can follow him on Twitter at YoungNBA. That is so cool. We got to play with Jamal Crawford. So I, that's awesome. When he first told the story, it, it stumped me for a second of, oh, what's going on? Why would that happen? And I forgot that every year the finals media contingent usually plays and pick up basketball at some point in time, and that can include any member of the media. So you got Jamal Crawford. Out of TNT, who put it up over there, There's and all of a sudden that changes a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> changes your expectation if you're just a, a beat writer covering the Nuggets. That all of a sudden Jamal Crawford's walking through that door. You know what? I'll be very happy as Shane said that he was passing the ball because I have a feeling that if he just wanted to like break your ankles, he really could do it with ease. And so oh, yeah. I guess that speaks to the talent no level because that mean that guy is isn't he like forty and he's still like. Probably better than 95, not even 95, 99% of the world at basketball. So that's a cool experience for him, obviously. And then what will be cooler tonight is if the Nuggets close this out and Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, they get their coordination. And I think I feel, just from a human standpoint, the most for a guy like Jamal Murray because of the injuries. And again, I witnessed some of the rehab when I was on the Pacers beat. You know, he came to Indy and he had these huge, I mean, I've, photos of it on my phone uh jimmy where he has these huge ice packs on his knees he went through this rigorous warm-up routine didn't play that game and it's like wow all of those days led you to this day this night where you know it'll be all worth it and so i'm excited to see the game and then on the other side you know that miami's not going to lay down and give you anything and if there is going to be a team that pulls out a win or does something that i guess ruins the narrative they're the narrative story ruiners, and so we'll see. But I just ultimately feel like Jokic is inevitable, and I feel like if anything is going to be at home, for sure.
That's James Boyd. I'm Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison here with us as well. We'll look more at the NBA Finals when we return. Plus, still to come, our journey around the AFC South continues. Jonathan Alexander covers the Texans for the Houston Chronicle. We'll head down south to the Lone Star State, figure out what's going on with the Houston Texans. C.J. Stroud, their quarterback of the future, where expectations are there, how they potentially feel about DeAndre Hopkins coming back to the south, albeit in Tennessee, if that signing goes down, and where they feel they are as a whole with the Jaguars likely being the top dog, at least at this point, with Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson down there in Jacksonville. We'll take a trip to Houston, top of the hour, but still to come, more on the NBA Finals and more of what we're looking for over the next couple of days with veteran minicamp to begin for the Indianapolis Colts starting tomorrow. That when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Podcast audience can't hear it. Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes here on the Rejoiner. The reason I give that a shout out is because it's pertinent tonight as for the last. I mean, everybody's adopted it as an anthem, right? Like it's not exclusively theirs, but you hear it very often in Miami. Won't be played tonight being in Denver, at least not in the same way as my complaint, which is that it never ceases to make me chuckle whenever that opening riff is played it's in the middle of a possession, James. Like a minute and a half to go, and all of a sudden, dun, 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 dun. it's like I get it. Like players aren't focused on that, but as a viewer, it's very distracting when that. Like you're in crunch time, you're locked in, and Seven Nation Army's coming over the loudspeaker with a minute and twenty to go. Yes, I am a fan of dead silence. I want to hear every. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying single that. thing. But you're so used to. You know, and instead you get. <laughs> yeah, I was exaggerating a bit, but I don't want to hear that. Yeah, I don't want to hear music. I want to hear the regular crowd noise, regular crowd sounds and buttons you push. But the music, no, we don't need that. It's already high stakes enough. We're going to get to bets a little bit later in the show. But we'll have a discussion here because it's fascinating when numbers like this come out. Tyler Hero expected to give it a go. The injured Miami Heat guard tonight in game five. His over-under point total is set at eight and a half. Now, there's been no announcements to this point. When we get it, we will supply it to you, depending on where our bets go this evening. But there's been no announcement yet as to what type of restriction or time allotted in the minutes department Tyler Hero is going to get. Eight and a half is an intriguing number because you just think to yourself, all right, he's there to knock down shots, get open, maybe hit some threes for Miami. Okay, three triples for him. Hit your over. Juice for the sake of argument, minus 106 over eight and a half. So you're betting $106 to win $100. You want to go under, it's minus 120, so $120 to win $100. I asked you guys this during the break. We'll revisit it here. This is one of those where I'm likely staying away from it because of this being his first appearance and pretty much the entirety of this run. It's been a long time since he's been out there with Miami, but I would be tempted to take the under just because. It's a pain tolerance thing, and if he's more of a liability that you already know going in, he's going to be on the defensive end, how much time is he really going to have in this game to hit that over? As I told you, Jimmy, time or not, if I'm Denver, 
You are not scoring eight points with a hand that is still mending from being broken. You have an assassin coming out first I mean, possession of the game. There's your bet. Jokes aside, if you think about all the times you use your hands in an NBA game beyond just shooting the ball, sure. like if you come off a screen, there's guys who rake down on your arm to get free. Like, if you put your hand on I'm breaking down on your arm. So these are all the tactics that you use in regular basketball situations where if your hand isn't as strong as it usually is, now I'm sure they're going to give them a pad or something or give them a shot of something to help the pain. But I just think that, you know, the the fact that it's not feeling how it normally would, teams know that. And just from a wind and conditioning standpoint, you haven't played. And so your first game back is in altitude on top of your return. So I think there's too many factors going into this to expect him to have a huge game. Now, he could come out and prove me totally wrong, but I'll be shocked, quite honestly, if he came out and hit like three or four threes for them. And even if he did, I still don't think it helps them win the game. It just helps whatever bet you place, I guess. To be clear, that's an important clarification to throw in there, my friend. This is about the bet. We don't care about Miami extending the series. Slam right the now. under there. I'm with the under. Okay. I'm right. with the under. Go with the under. Yes. Eddie has this conversation shifted. Your viewpoint at all on an over under tally? To me, to me, it all matters on how many minutes is he going to play. Like James has mentioned, the altitude and the conditioning part is a real thing to think about here. Let's say he plays 14 minutes. 14 minutes, I wouldn't touch it because like there's a chance that you know he can make two threes, you know, bang bang, and then you get to layup and then goes to the foul line or something like the the avenue to get to nine points as a guard when you need scoring uh like the miami heat do is so easy especially when you consider that pick and roll the high screen with bam out of bio like i think hero would be able to get past Jokic and get to the basket uh it's just a matter of if there's help side defense there or not from like aaron gordon or somebody i, I there is an avenue for him to easily get nine points now it all comes down to how much he's going to play and what's his conditioning like to me, like James pointed out. You've played, we all have, and some of our listening audience has, and for some of our listening audience, just hang around and pretend like you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever played any type of basketball video game before, I think back to my days playing NBA 2K, and I really love the franchise mode where you're getting to build everything from roster construction to minutes allocation, everything like that, and you're looking at, in this instance, the minutes you had last game to answer Eddie's question for how many minutes you're likely going to have for Tyler Hero tonight. Kevin Love plays an 18, Jay Butler goes all 45, Bam in a bio 44 minutes, Gabe Vincent and Max Strews, 19 apiece, 25 for Duncan Robinson, 33 for Caleb Martin, 33 for Kyle Lowry, 4 for Cody Zeller. So you're borrowing from different areas of, okay, how many minutes are we going to allocate at this point to Tyler Hero? You would figure that he would likely borrow some of the chunk of Kyle Lowry, not a ton, but maybe a couple maybe, here or there. Or maybe Gabe Vincent because he's been in foul trouble the last few games. But even then, the moment that the Tyler Hero experiment isn't working – I think you have to pull the plug and go with the guys who got you to the finals. And so it's a tough situation to be in. But again, like Shane said, it's smart to just play every card you have because at this point, why keep anything in the chamber? I mean, it's this or your offseason. So go for it. Mr. Cancun, bring out Tyler Hero, see what happens. I don't know if it's Cancun because, you know, they're in Miami to sure. begin with. So it's like you just go home and like – Save your money for now and just rest up and enjoy South Beach. And That's a smart financial. I'm not going to lie. Obviously, I know I would assume losing the final stings, but unlike when it was in the bubble, you get to go back to like paradise and you're still rich. <laughs> and so I know, you know, money isn't everything, but I would think it's a nice we, chunk of things. I would think that when you have that much money, though, and you're playing the sport you love, 
the sting it, it's one of those it never it never goes away yeah jokes aside i don't I, think, obviously you're kidding yeah but. i don't think that it goes away if you're a true competitor however everyone always says this about rich people but i never hear rich people say this you know so i enjoy you know just the thought of making that much money for my job and i do think that it helps now it might not be the only thing but man, it it is nice, and you know I go back to when LeBron called everyone broke after he lost in 2011 against the Mavs, and so um, it must not be that bad to wake up and realize, well, I'm still rich, and I got another chance to do this next year. But and then just to be quite honest, Miami, I love the run, but there's only so much in all seriousness you can conjure up out of the same group that just isn't on the same talent level as their opponent. That's just the bottom line. They don't have enough talent. Like, if you're asking me about will to win, X's and O's, execution, maximizing what you have, both teams are probably even. And you pointed out earlier in the series that Boston, whether it was against Milwaukee, there were inherent flaws that were present that Miami was able to take advantage of that just aren't apparent against Denver. Yeah, and one of the flaws was Boston just didn't play smart. They played very silly basketball Miami doesn't do that, but again, the talent gap. And then I just think that, and then, you know, someone was, I thought some tweet, it was like, you know, if uh, the Heat come back, Kevin Love will be on the only team that did it twice in the NBA Finals. And it's, but to me, there's not that Pathion great on this team right now that you could point to and say, that guy's going to at least give me one more game. I think Jimmy's been great, but I don't know if I trust him in the finals with the way he's been playing. Maybe it's the minutes, maybe the ankle thing going on earlier. I don't know what it is, but... I, he, he hasn't really looked the same since Right, he hasn't looked like best player in the world, Jimmy Butler, that he was against Milwaukee. Now, I'm not saying he can't do it, but I would be surprised to see it tonight if he came out and had like a, I don't know, a 47-point game just to stave him off. But even then, I just wonder, how can you sustain that? Because to me, when I saw that Cleveland comeback, I kept telling myself there's no way LeBron and Kyrie are going to be able to sustain this level of play for three straight games, and they did it. And they're the only ones you've seen do it at that level. And so it just seems like the writing's on the wall and, and Denver's there to, you know, make history. And what's cool about that is no matter what happens from here on out, you're always going to be the first. You can't be the second first. They're going to be the first team in Denver history to win a championship. Just like, you know, years ago, D-Wade was with the Miami. So that's a special moment that they should cherish for sure. When you look at Nikola Jokic and you look at Jamal Murray – you look at Aaron Gordon and them acquiring him, and you look at what, in general, Michael Porter Jr. is able to bring to the table. The contracts are on lock for the next several years. We talked a lot out east, but when you look out west, Gold State's always going to be there, but how much do they change with roster construction? Sacramento, for all that we talked about them and this great story about how maybe it's the King's time and, and they're right there, they're a piece away, there's still uncertainty of what type of season they're going to be able to put together next year if they're able to take that next step forward. And that's not even having a conversation yet about LeBron James or what happens in Dallas. Denver, how do they change, if at all, from a national perspective? I don't mean from a coverage standpoint, but how does Denver change in terms of our evaluation of teams out West and teams in the NBA as a whole if they close things out tonight? I think you have to look at it as top dog, obviously, which they weren't given that respect, even though their record reflected they were the best team Number one seed. in the West all season. But I also think that then we get into what we saw from 
other teams that were able to win and stay on top. It's, okay, how do you retool? And we saw the Lakers take some huge missteps after 2020 when they basically just redid their entire roster after they won it, and it came back to bite them, and they were just, you know, lost for a few seasons before they kind of righted the ship this season. And then you look at Golden State, which was a different approach where they were kind of similar where they had some of that homegrown talent and then the pieces around them kind of shifted year to year. You know, whether it was Sean Livingston or Gary Payton, the second, you know, those types of players that helped them get over the top. So, Iguodala. Oh, Lord. Him, too. <laughs> Jokes Indeed. aside. No, I mean, yeah. Finals MVP, a yeah. guy who's very versatile. So, that's why I think Denver's next challenge would be after winning it this year. It would be how do we retool and stay at the same level, knowing that we probably can't pay this exact iteration of the team with the exact same guys like I said Bruce Brown's probably going to get a huge payday I know Shane mentioned that he might stick around I do think that he would have to take a significant discount to do so now I'm not saying he wouldn't do it 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 helps when you're winning but at the same time you have the ring now why not yeah go get paid? it's usually smarter not smarter but just it's easier I would think to chase the money so to speak after you've already accomplished the pinnacle of the sport that's James Boyd I'm Jimmy Cook Eddie Garrison with us behind the ones and two. Still to come, a conversation at the top of the hour with Jonathan Alexander. We'll continue our AFC South journey as we get an update on what's going on in Houston as the C.J. Stroud era gets closer and closer to its arrival. But when we return, we've mentioned the Denver Nuggets and how they were built. We had this conversation with Shane Young earlier. Podcast will be up wherever you get your podcast. Just search the Fan Midday Show a little bit later this afternoon. But patience was very important to the development of the Denver Nuggets. How much patience can we have with the Indiana Pacers as you map out the strides they're trying to make year over year? That discussion will return on the Fan Midday Show. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Back on the Fan Midday Show, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, and Eddie Garrison. I want to remind you while we have a second, who doesn't love some golf in the summertime? Well, the fan is having some golf in the summertime. The fan on the back nine golf tournament. Brought to you by Franciscan Health to benefit the American Heart Association. It's coming up on Tuesday, July 11th. Got an afternoon of golf, food, tournament-style games at Back Nine Golf and Entertainment with Kevin. <laughs> sorry, with Kevin and Query and JMV. Each ticket purchased again, as we mentioned, donates to the American Heart Association. If you'd like to be a part of it, either as an individual or with a foursome, if you're trying to get a group of buddies over at Back Nine, head to 1075thefan.com and purchase your ticket today. Registration will be. 10 a.m. on July 11th. Get a little welcome from JMV shortly thereafter. Golf outing will start at 11 and go till about 3 o'clock. Plus, JMV will be hosting a live auction as well. It'll benefit the charity and as well we'll have sports memorabilia and one-of-a-kind experiences up in live auction as they continue for a little summer fun and also something, as we mentioned, to benefit the American Heart Association. It sounds like a fun event. Are you? Would you beat me? On the back nine, no, I'll not. That. Yes, you would. I'm, I'm awful at golf. No, I'm I'm pretty bad myself. Like, whew, Lord have mercy. Eddie, I do you bring not. anything to the table? I honestly don't know. 
I could not name. As a former baseball player, I'd like to think I could, but I don't know. The swings are two to- totally different. I'd they, s- they are. slice everything. No, I think that I would definitely be going viral because I missed the ball on a couple drives, and I have no idea what all the different things even are in the caddy case. So, Golf bag? Yeah, th- there, there you go. go. See, see I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking We have I like, I like caddy case better for the alliteration, but that's I do just too. Me. You should trademark that if it's not already there. There you go. You have got a side golf hustle. balls and tees and clubs. There you go. They have golf balls and golf. Well, yeah. I, I didn't know that. I'm yeah. Le- I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> but jokes aside, something like a great sure. event, something you can obviously invite your self out to your friends your family get out there and have a good time and chop it up with you know jmv and the rest of the crew yeah again that's the fan of the back nine golf tournament that'll be tuesday july 11th at back nine golf and entertainment go to 1075thefan.com for more information james we had this conversation with shane young a little bit earlier in order to win in the nba as a smaller market like denver you have to be able to execute at every turn in the draft mm-hmm. once you have a nice core or nice set of centerpieces to be able to build around like Denver ultimately had with Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. It's about finding the right pieces to fit in there. And this is a process that has taken about eight years to fine tune and get to the doorstep of a championship. It's a very long time. Even all the jokes we make about short attention fan society, that's a very long time to sit and wait for something to develop and flourish into a championship window and ultimately culminate with Larry O'Brien trophy. I see you very pensive state right now for the listening audience how much patience not from the fans because we know that's a lost cause championship tomorrow i understand (laughs) how much patience must be practiced with this young core by pacers ownership and by the pacers front office as again we approach a very important draft to set yourself continuing down that path to hopefully one day be in championship contention well i think after victim women yama drops to number seven (laughs) You'll be in great position. Win be to Indy. Yeah, win be to Indy. I'm never going to let this go until he's in another uniform. The hashtag is back. But I do think that they're still on like a two to three year plan. Not saying as far as the playoffs, but as far as what you want to build for your future. And so I do think that this number seven pick is huge because maybe you don't find a superstar, but you find a player who helps, you know, uh, elevate your culture and get you back to where you believe you should be. Because, again, the Pacers are a team that isn't used to bottoming out like this and just having really lean seasons. So I expect them to make a push for the playoffs this upcoming season. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to be a top five seed in the East or nothing like that. But given the play-in tournament and the way that things kind of have shaken out with that, I would be kind of shocked if they just missed out on everything completely if Halliburton stays healthy, if Miles stays healthy. So I think you get someone who can kind of fit that timeline of growth and you hope that Halliburton takes a leap from being an all-star to possibly an all-NBA caliber player. You hope that Benedict Matherin takes a step forward from being, you know, all-rookie to a really, really good starter in this league. And then you obviously hope that Miles Turner can build on a career year and then that, that seventh pick fits in. And then to me, the key is defense. Now, I know... There's a lot of decisions to be made as far as what veterans they go out and get and things like that. But to me, offense hasn't been a problem the last few years. It's defensively. How do you stop a team? Because to me, you're not really a good team 
to me, unless you can get stops when you need to and have that be something that other teams have to respect. Because right now, I mean, you saw him last season. It feels like every Pacers game is like 135 to 130, and you're hoping that Buddy Heald and Halliburton make enough threes or something like that for you to win. And that's not how it works in the postseason. Even in a playing game, you have to be able to get stops. And so I just want to see them take a step forward in that department with the picks that they have and obviously the players they bring in. I hear that complaint all the time, particularly from older basketball fans that are used to high defensive level principles. And they're like, oh, the NBA, there's there's way too much scoring nowadays. Well, that's because you're watching the Pacers every night and they're giving up 130 game. I'm not saying that league wide, it's not a more high paced game. Right. Offense wins out more often than not in the regular season. That is definitely true. But at some point, something has to give in that realm for me. When I think back to the way we're evaluating Jamal Murray, and we'll get to this a little bit again at 2.30, in his first, second, and third seasons, you were like, there's promise there. What is he able to develop to that next level? There's a couple players in particular I need to see next level leaps from. We'll get into that at 2.30 here on the Fan Midday Show. But first, we'll take a quick timeout. When we return, Jonathan Alexander covers the Houston Texans and the NFL for the Houston Chronicle. We'll get his takeaways from afar at what the Colts have done this offseason, if there'll be a changing of the guard at quarterback definitively for the Houston Texans and where expectations would be for them within the AFC South. Jonathan Alexander joins the Fan Midday Show when we come back. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Still here hanging out in the drivehubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. You're listening to 107.5 The Fan. We have my guy, Jonathan Alexander, on the line. He covers the Houston Texans for the Houston Chronicle. Jonathan, before I ask you a serious question, I have a much more serious question. We had this debate earlier. (laughs) If you were in an Oklahoma drill against Derrick Henry, out of 100 tries, how many times are you getting him on the ground? Injuries are turned off. I heard yeah, on that Twitter. was a key caveat earlier because I'd be done after the first one. This is the Twitter question I saw floating around. I thought this was hilarious. Injuries turned off. How many times are you getting Derrick Henry on the ground in Oklahoma drill? How many times am I getting him on the ground? I'm not getting him on the ground at all. Injuries turned off or on. I'm, I'm bailing out. Jonathan, do me a favor. We're, we're going to put you on hold for a second and have Eddie readjust your connection real quick because it sounds like you're you're really close to the phone for a second. Um, I agree with his takeaways though in terms of like I'm not I'm not surviving that drill I'm not like I told you this beforehand and that would be the case with almost any NFL player by the way but particularly a ball carrier like first off I don't even have form tackling to begin with let's not even discussing the fact of my muscle definition of Linguini over here like we're just not we're not we're not going down that route even if you turn injuries off it's not there's no pathway or it ends well for me. I could say the same about any running back, any ball carrier that you want to throw out there. The only difference is Derrick Henry's two Mack trucks stacked on top of one another, and it's not ending well for anybody involved. I think that what's your what's your end game there? Shoestring? Like is that just all your 
All you're hoping for? Oh, yeah, tackle and, just, and, it, and if I get you Derrick Henry, oh, <laughs> am I bragging? I'm telling everybody I'm the Derrick Henry stopper. I'm first team all pro. I'm everything. And it's funny that we mentioned this question to Jonathan. Again, we're working to get him back on the line. He has a piece he really recently put out, Q&A with Damian Pierce. And he asked Damian Pierce about, you know, being a bruising running back. And one of the quotes that Damian Pierce gave him is, it's literally as black and white as, as this. You know, it was a dip your shoulder into contact, break the tackle. I see two defenders sandwiching me, so I really can't lean. Left or right, kind of just got to stay square. So stay square. Double wrap the ball, get low, and then shed the contact. That is so matter of fact. When he's talking about you know one of his tougher runs last season where he shed two guys, um, yeah, I cannot do that. It is not that easy to do that. So we're back on, I believe. J- Jay, you're good. You're on the line. Yo, can you hear me? Oh, got crystal you. clear. Yes, let's go. We got you, crystal clear. I had to ask that question though because we've been debating this all morning and all afternoon, and I just thought it was hilarious to bring it up again. I know you had the piece on Damian. Here. So, are you going to be over against him as well? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. <laughs> Dang, man. See, you better no, no. than me because I get on the radio and I'm talking crazy. Yeah, because I know I'm never going to back it up. So, I'm just going to say whatever <laughs> yeah. I need to say. I, I know I know where my strengths lie, and they they were never in tackling people. Uh, you know, I, whenever <laughs> I played football, I was always catching the ball and trying to run away from people, never trying to tackle somebody and then and get that kind of hurt. So, Fair, yeah, I'm good on that one. Fair enough. But on a more serious note. We know that C.J. Stroud is down there. He's obviously taking some of the first-team reps. What have you seen from him as far as his command of the offense, you know, as far as his teammates approaching him, you know, gelling with him? How has that all looked from your perspective? Yeah, so from my perspective, that was one of the biggest things, right? Him trying to earn his teammates' respect, him being a rookie, and you have a bunch of veterans who you're playing around and you got to earn their respect. What I've seen, I think he's taking that approach and he's been kind of purposeful with that. And, and his teammates talk about it. They, they've noticed him uh, carry himself with a humbleness, but he has confidence. So they believe in him and he's tried to, uh, you know, bring that camaraderie within the team so they can trust him. And as far as the offense goes, it's, of course it's a work in progress. He's still learning the NFL offense. You know, Ohio State's playing more out of the shotgun. Now he's playing a lot under the center. But what I've seen and what I've been most impressed about CJ is is just his patience. I mean, OTAs, you saw him, uh, a lot of his first reads were not there, but he stayed patient and went to second and third reads or would hit his checkdowns. And I think that's going to be important in the NFL that he not panic when he gets in those situations and he's going up against defenses that will uh, provide pressure, pressure on him or disguise looks. So I think so far so good. I think he, CJ seems to be on track to being that starter in week one. Jonathan, there's a lot of different areas I know we're going to cover today, and and I want to look at the build of the Texans and how you feel about their place and their development, not just this season, but the coming seasons in the AFC South. But you had quote tweeted last week the Texans who put out an ominous tweet about today's date, 6-12-2023. I just want to make sure that I, I didn't miss the boat on this. Was that just a teaser for their announcement they made today, ultimately, that J.J. Watt is going to be in the Ring of Honor? Correct. So, J- so J.J. White is going to speak with the media uh, tomorrow on six uh, twelve. So it was a teaser. So they put out the announcement today for what's going to happen tomorrow, and J.J. will be inducted into the Ring of Honor. Where does this rank from a significant standpoint? Obviously, the, the Texans being an expansion franchise, there's no doubt J.J. White goes down as one of, if not the most talented, most impactful player to ever come through those doors. By historical standpoint, though, a, a very t- relatively young franchise, 
what will that moment mean both for J.J. Watt and the Houston Texan community as a whole? Yeah, this is huge. J.J. Watt spoke about it a little bit. You know, fans weren't initially sold on J.J. Watt when he first got drafted, uh, but eventually he won the hearts. He obviously one of the best players to play the game at defensive end. Um, and he's considered one of the top two players to ever wear a Texans uniform, him and Andre Johnson. That's why he's the second person to be inducted in their Reagan Bonner. Immediately when, when he retired, um, you know, they reached out to him and wanted to gauge his interest in, in doing that and possibly retiring as a Texan. Um, so it, it's been important for this uh, this ownership group uh, with the McNairs who really value J.J. White. Well, they were, if my understanding, they had a meeting with him before he wanted to leave. Um, and, and there were a lot of emotions that went when he when he requested that trade or, or when, when they parted ways. So he's meant so much to this franchise, so much to the fans, um, and, and the impact that he had on them and, and getting to so many playoffs while he was there. Um, so it's going to be a huge moment uh, for, Tech, for J.J. Watt as well as Texans fans. Again, we're locked in with Jonathan Alexander. You can follow him on Twitter at J-O-N-M Alexander. He covers the Texans for the Houston Chronicle. Jonathan, we talked about the greatness of J.J. Watt. I'm not saying that Will Anderson has to come in and be that right away, but Mm -hmm. what have you seen from him? And obviously, I would think that Houston was really high on him because of what price they paid to move up again and go get him. Yeah. It's my understanding. Will Anderson was was literally their favorite player. He was the first guy who... um, kind of who had his top 30 visit with them. Um, they had everybody there. So it was just Will Anderson, the only person on that visit. Um, so they've been high on Will, on Will Anderson from the very beginning. Of course, D'Amico Ryan had knowledge of Will Anderson, given that they both uh, were Alabama guys. And, and D'Amico Ryan has been around that program, has a great relationship with Nick Saban and has had conversations with them. So he knew about him. And they kind of formed that connection. What I've seen from Will Anderson is this desire uh, you know, to be great. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, really wants, he's not, he's not coming in as if, he, as if he's this guy who's already on top. He feels like he has to earn it. I think that's important for young guys like that. And um, the Texans biggest need was that was one of their biggest needs was that defensive end. And, and Will Anderson can come in and immediately make an impact uh, for them off that edge. Um, and, uh he's somebody who desperately fills one of the boys that they had last year. Jonathan, we've talked a lot about the dynamic between Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson here locally, and there's yet to be obviously an announcement. And there won't be for quite some time who's going to be the starter week one. It feels like C.J. Stroud's ultimately going to be the one that is under center for the Texans week one, at least from afar for us. But with that relationship and that quarterback room, what is the conversations or the feel been like between the relationship of C.J. Stroud and take Davis Mills, for example? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's an interesting one. I think both Davis Mills and C.J. Stroud um, are, are being professional about it. But, of course, Davis Mills wants to be, um, you know, the starter. He, you know, he feels like he can still earn it. So you probably have a little bit of that competition there. But the sense that I get is that they're supporting each other along the way. Neither one of them wants to lose a starting position, but this is definitely C.J. Stroud's job. Um, he was he came here, they drafted him number two for a reason. Um, and, you know, they took that chance drafting him number two, not knowing for sure 100% that they were going to get Will Anderson. So, you know, he's expected to be the face of the franchise. Everybody knows uh, how important it is to have a quarterback. You know, Colts obviously know that as well. Um, and And – 
you know, their struggles last year were in large part because of their quarterback play and their offense. Um, but I think both of them are, are, are trying to improve as much as they can. And I think their support, I don't think there's any adversary, but there's definitely competition in trying to win that, trying to win that starting position. So similar to Indianapolis, who selected Anthony Richardson, they went out and got Josh Downs, a smaller, shifty receiver. Houston did the same thing with Tank Dell. What has he shown, and how do you think he can help the development and sort of just maybe decrease some of that learning curve for C.J. Stroud if he can be one of those sure-handed, third-down, you know, move-the-chains type of you know receivers? Yeah, I think – so what Tank Dell has shown is, is is an ability to be explosive. Um, you know, the Texans have definitely lacked that in the past. But I don't really know yet that Tank Dell is a number one wide receiver. He's definitely a we- weapon that will help uh, C.J. Stroud, and they're going to need that in particular, somebody who can get open. Um, but he has a he, Tank Dell is five uh, nine, one hundred sixty sixty pounds, um, and even though he plays above his weight, um, he still has a long way to go. But the fact that they're coming in together, they have a relationship together, and they can grow together, C.J. Stroud and Tank Dell, that is, I think that that's only positive. But I think the jury's still out on what Tank Dell can be and how good he can be in, in, in the type of immediate impact he can have. But I still think that the Texans, that's one of their weaknesses. They need to add a number one wide receiver. I, I still think that they're that that's one of the things that they're going to have to address probably in next year's draft. Oh, I completely agree. I think that – even on our side of things here in Indy, Josh Downs is wide receiver three at best going into this season. But yeah. to pivot away from the players themselves and look more at the coaching staff, D'Amico Ryans, how has he commanded this franchise since taking over and being handed the reins? And obviously there's high expectations that come with that, but also just so much that has to be done to point this franchise in, a, in the right direction. Yeah, I think what D'Amico has done is – I mean, he when he came in, he had an already established kind of credibility. He's a a players coach. Um, you know, off, without even being brought up, players often bring out the fact that he's a he. Um, you know, he played the game, and, and and I don't think it's just the fact that he played the game. I think it's the fact that it was recent, right? And mm-hmm. he, he kind of looks, you know, almost their age or like some of their veterans' age. Um, so he has that instant credibility. They saw what he did with the 49ers and helping them become a number one uh, defense. Uh, you know, people talk around the league, they brought some players in so they can speak him up. Um, so I think he's kind of changed the mindset of this team that, you know, they can be good. And, and it's going to be a process. They're going to have to build. It's going to take some time. They can't rest a process. But uh, I think so far he has them believing that, you know, they are building something and they can win. And, and, and I think one of the biggest differences between this and the previous is, Last year, it kind of seemed like Lovey Smith kind of – he was an old-school guy. This is my way. And I think some kind of players felt like, you know, they didn't really have as much of a say. It seems kind of like the Miko Ryans is more so, you know, this is this is, this is is kind of our team. This is what we're going to do. What are your thoughts? He's built a coaching staff that, you know, asks players their input. And, um, you know, they seem to be building this together, and they seem to be excited about it. And we'll see how it goes. Jonathan Alexander with us on the Fan Midday Show. Covers the Texans for the Houston Chronicle. One of the more fascinating stories in terms of just seeing athletes on the human interest side of things overcome incredible circumstances is with John Mechie, who obviously was diagnosed with leukemia last year and has, has battled through that. And by all intentions from his account, from the Texans, 
plans to play at some point in 2023. I know he's had some hamstring issues that have limited him, limited him at this point in time through OTAs and through the early offseason, but whenever his arrival is, and I know that wide receiver coach down there, Ben McDaniels, has said that they're not going to rush him. He's going to attempt to come back, and when he's ready, he's ready. But whenever that arrival is for John Mechie, what does that do for whoever's under center for the Houston Texans, and what does it do for this offense when you look at how touted Mechie was coming out of the draft, even with that ACL injury in the national championship game a couple years ago? Yeah, I mean, that gives them another potential weapon, and you know, a weapon that they didn't have last year. Somebody who can play, who's really good out of the slot, was super productive for Alabama, um, and, and you know, it, it also kind of boosts their spirits. You know, he he was a guy who was on a lot of their wide receivers in particular and in the rest of the team's mind as he battled through that cancer diagnosis. But he always kind of came in with a positive attitude coming to the locker room, always had a smile on his face. Um, so he, he, you know, he, aside from the fact that he's a good, he's potentially a really good football player. Um, he's a great person. Um, but you know, he's a, he's, he adds another weapon for CJ Stroud and, and, and that's what the Texans need. They need as many weapons as possible. And if he can come back healthy, and get over these hamstrings. And, and obviously, you know, when you haven't played for a year, you're going to deal with some of those those issues. But uh, if he could come in and, and be healthy, he can he can add, you know, another weapon for C.J. Stroud that they were desperately missing last year. Jonathan, here in Indy, one of the biggest stories last week was the alleged gambling violation by uh, Isaiah Rogers Sr. And obviously that could change things for the Colts. And I think it's becoming an issue for the league after that news, were there any talks? Did you all ask, you know, the coaching staff, like what does it look like for Houston players when it comes to relaying that message of these are the do's and don'ts of the gambling policy? Yeah, I, we, my understanding is it, they weren't really asked about it, but, you know, it's something that's at the forefront of, of people's mind because, you know, I was reading something and it just seems like a lot of players weren't really clear mm-hmm. on uh, the rules of it. So I think it, what you'll see um, from – and they they run a tight ship with the Texans – is that you'll see them probably be a lot more clear on the rules and the policies and, 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 and making making sure that players understand that you can't gamble. Because I'm sure it, it probably happens a lot more in this league. And, and you know, the, the latest uh, players who got caught up in it won't be the last players who got caught up in it. And, you know, we're seeing – uh, the league turning with all these advertisements and, and how it's becoming more gambling friendly. Some players are, might end up getting caught up in the in the temptations of it. So I think what you'll see the Texans do is, is try to be a lot more clear on what players can and can't do because um, it has to be good. They'll be getting they'll be in trouble like some of these other players, and it's something the league needs to look at. So I'm not asking you to bet on this, but the Colts could not get a win against Houston last year. Do they get one this year? I I had in my in my schedule prediction I had the the two splitting. I think Anthony Richardson is another dynamic. Uh, I think the Colts did get better this year, definitely better. A new coaching staff, I think that'll help them. I think the two teams will split. So yes, yeah, I think so. I had a similar approach as well. Yeah. I I just picture Jim Irsay. Um, you know, flipping a table or something if they can't beat Houston at least once this upcoming season. Given, I know you said their team's moving in the right direction. I don't doubt that. But still knowing, like, you're a long way for, away from being what, I guess, the franchise ownership would hope that you all become down there. Uh, not saying you all, like, you're on the team, but the team you cover. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And last year, last year's game week week eighteen game was just an abomination. Oh man, I was there. It was uh, it was yeah. quite the, the ending for sure. <laughs> Something you'll never forget. Yeah. Lovey Smith fist bumping fist bumping fans on the way out, telling you know Houston, no, no, not the number one pick. We- Sorry. We need a tag team or, or history. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> no, no amount of showers will wash away that game. That, that's for sure. And Jonathan Alexander with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Jonathan, we had Greg Arias, who covers the Titans beat, on a little bit earlier today. And I asked him this question. I want to get your perspective on it as well. When you look at the AFC South right now, for all its faults, for all the, the struggles, and it's right up there with the NFC South in terms of title for worst division in football, at least going into 2023. Does it feel like everybody's looking up at like a skyscraper with the Jacksonville Jaguars in Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson and what they're building down there? Or because of how close things were in Tennessee's camp coming down to the last game of the season, is that gap maybe oversold or overstated because of Jacksonville's appearance in the divisional round last year? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think um, that the gap is overstated. I still think that the Jaguars are the team to beat, and they'll continue to get better. And you know, I, I've seen Trevor Lawrence play since college, and uh, you know, I think I think highly of him. Um, however, I, I didn't see like significant improvements in them uh, this off season that would make me say, "Uh oh, like the rest of the AFC South teams are in trouble." Uh, the AFC, obviously, most of the AFC South teams are starting over with their new quarterbacks, but. I, I see improvements in the Colts and improvements in the Texans that they can eventually close the gap. But right now, yes, it is a Jaguars team. And I think if Ryan Tannehill can have a good year and Derrick Henry, I don't know how many more years he has, but he's still a monster whenever he's on the field. Um, you know, I, I think they can still be competitive. So I don't think the gap is so deep. I do think the Jaguars are the best team, but I don't think the gap is so deep. Jonathan, who are some veterans down there in Houston who are – taking it on their shoulders as a responsibility to help bridge that gap between the old era of Houston Texans to this new era that involves, obviously, T.J. Stroud? Yeah, I, I think you see a guy like left tackle Laramie Tunsil who got the long-term extension and became the highest-paid left tackle in the league. He's a guy who wants to take on a bigger leadership role. You got Jerry Hughes, um, who defense in, probably only has like one more year, um, but he's another leader. And then, of course, you got Captain Christian Kersey, who's, you know, status might be a little bit up in the air, but um, middle linebacker um, who has a who could be a cap casualty. But um, I think those guys who have been vocal about kind of bridging that gap um, from the old regiment to the new regiment, and those are the guys who were leaders last year. And Damian Pierce, too, coming into his own, uh, even though it's his second year. Um, he's kind of become that face of the franchise and uh, he'll continue to be a major factor for them and somebody a lot of people look up to. The last thing for me, how have you seen C.J. Stroud sort of toe that line between I know I'm a rookie, I have to learn my way around this thing, but that confidence because I believe I saw a glimpse of it at the Combine where Mm -hmm. during that first big media scrum that we were all in, he seemed to be so confident in himself, but also humorous and also, you know, having that humility to go along with it. Yeah. I, I think one of the things, so like one of the things Dalton Schultz told us was like, okay, so CJ Stroud, um, is, he carries himself very humbly. And I like that, but when he plays and gets out on the field, um, he oozes confidence. So the fact that he, he, when he's on the field, he has confidence in his ability. I think his teammates feel that, 
But when he doesn't know something, he's asking questions. Okay, what do you like? How can I make this better for you? And and I feel like, uh, you know, the fact that he's doing that, players are taking to that. One of the things Damian Pierce mentioned, though, was that, hey, when you get out here, don't be afraid to command the huddle. We believe in you. We got your back. So that's one thing he's going to have to step up to do. I think he's. I think he's really trying to gauge. I don't really think he's trying to come in and take over. I think he's really trying to read his teammates and see how they respond. And they want him. They see his ability. They want him to take over. So I think, uh, you know, he's taking a, a careful approach, and I think it's working so far. Jonathan, last thing on my end, you covered the NFL as a whole as well, not just the Texans. And I want to get your takeaways from this continued, I don't want to call it an exodus, but this continued departure from the days of being willing to give top money to running backs or keeping running backs past their shelf life, even further than what it was before. You know, it used to be, well, once you get north of 30, we want nothing to do with you. And now you see Dalvin Cook at 27 being a free agent. You see Saquon Barkley debat- debating if he wants to sign his franchise tag. Colt's going to have that decision to make with Jonathan Taylor. Is there ever a point of stability as you look down the line at running back, or is this just the new age thing where sure we have some teams that feel compelled to pay big money, but for the most part, like what the Texans are doing right now, it's not a great example for success, but it's a great example for finding value. Damian Pierce on a nice contract to this stretch as a rookie or you know as an ongoing player where they have him under control until 2026, at which point he's 26 years old. Will we ever find stability at the running back position when it comes to dollars and cents? I think so eventually, but I don't think right now. I think the trend is what you'll continue to see. Like I covered Christian McCaffrey, and they made him the richest running back at the time when he was with the Panthers. They made him the richest running back at the time, um, giving him like a four-year, sixty-four million dollar extension. And then he was hurt the next two years, and they regretted that decision and giving him that money, and then ended up having to trade him. Um, you know, in situations like that, you may end up having to pay. A running back, a top tier running back like that. Um, but anything less than that, I think you'll continue to see teams say, mm, "Well, if you're not healthy, like I'm not going to pay you." Um, and I think that'll go probably for the next few years until they figure out that that fine sweet spot and how they find it. I don't know, but I think what you're seeing is like running backs because of the short shelf life, they're easily replaceable. You can find somebody who can um, replace their production. I mean, it's not easy to find it, but it's possible. And I think the fact that it makes it possible is the reason why teams won't be paying uh, running backs. It's top money um, anymore. As my fellow YMCA hoops connoisseur <laughs> a few months ago, who you got tonight in the NBA Finals? Uh, the Nuggets, they're just too strong, man. They're just way too strong for the Heat. Uh, he had a value effort, but Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, and they, they just have a super deep team. See, I knew he had some sense. That's why we have him on the show. So appreciate you, Jonathan, man. I'll catch up with you soon. I'll see you soon, obviously, for the season. But uh, as always, man, thanks for the time. Appreciate you, bro. Keep doing your thing. All right, that was Jonathan Alexander. Covers the NFL and the Houston Texans in particular for the Houston Chronicle. You can follow him on Twitter at J-O-N-M Alexander. I'm still waiting for someone to tell me they can tackle Derrick Henry. Damian Pierce. You're going about this the wrong way. You need to find media members a la the Jamal Crawford pickup game situation where they've played in the league before. You're, 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 you're asking the wrong guys. Eddie, Oklahoma drill. How many are you getting on the ground? 
No injuries. You're invincible. You will not break. Uh, you could still get thrown from the 20 to the sideline, though, in one push. That's still potential on the table. At least for me, it is. You won't get hurt, but, you know. One. Yes. Yes. We have a winner. I'm tough. We have a winner. I'm, I'll do it. Talk that talk, Eddie. Talk that talk. I'll be Charmin in the studio. That's fine. I'm not I'm not afraid. That's not, I, it's not happening. I have legit no chance. <laughs> Injuries are off. I got the chance. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I, I did, jokes aside, I did find it interesting that he mentioned Damian uh, Pierce is one of the veterans going into his second year, one of the leaders of the team. That kind of speaks to the level of rebuilding they're yeah. doing down there in Houston. It seems that the Colts are going through a rebuild, but it still isn't, in my opinion, I don't want to say as bleak, but just as depleted as it is down in Houston. There are pieces there. So I, I think that, you know, I asked him as, in a joking way, but I'm serious, can they beat Houston? I think that they really should beat Houston both times this year. Because of how, no matter what quarterback is in there, they have enough talent on this roster. You don't, you can't tell me that a healthy JT, a healthy Grove, healthy Buck, you know, can't figure out a way to beat Houston, especially at home, at least once at home. If I was a Colts fan, this opinion would not be coming out of my mouth right now. But you mentioned the idea of whoever the quarterback is. No, no, no. If it's Gardner Minshew under center. I'm not interested in seeing the W because that means it's not a growth opportunity for Anthony Richardson. I'm not. I don't want this to turn into this thing where they win five games with Gardner Minshew and then they decide halfway through the season, hey, it's time to give Anthony Richardson the reign. And then there's this like potential sense of hope among the fan base of, oh, the South is so bad. Breathe, Maybe we can breathe. win the division. Breathe, no, Jimmy. I don't breathe. know. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> breathe. Breathe. We are not in August or September just yet. You, it made me feel like we were with that. We're putting expectations on if they're going to beat the Texans once or not. It doesn't matter who the quarterback is. It matters to me. Dang it, Jimmy. Who's winning week 11? <laughs> See what I mean? We've not See, done our, our game by game he's process. He's up. I am. Wusa, my friend Wusa. Nice. Well done. Appreciate that. <laughs> James Boyd, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison here in the fan midday show. Do you even know who they play week 11? I don't have it in front of me. It's no, the bye so week. Nah, it is. He got me. He got me. Well done. See, you haven't studied enough. I've not. I was also trying to skate you past failed. that without Eddie Garrison trying to pull in his bag of tricks, but I, I didn't get out in time. Also, he can still turn all the mics on and off, so that's, 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 that's it's his job. That's why he's, he's the master of, of ceremonies. They're helping us through the afternoon. We'll revisit our expectations for the start of veteran minicamp for the Indianapolis Colts. Look at what James is going to have his eye on when that gets started tomorrow. And some bets still to come. Game five of the NBA Finals tonight. You can hear it. 7.30 coverage begins. Heat Nuggets as Denver looks for their first championship in franchise history. But predictions and evaluations, what we hope to see out of veteran minicamp when we return on the Fan Midday Show. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison with us here at the DriveHeeber.com studios. Tomorrow is the next step towards this long, long journey before week one hits us right in the face. For James Boyd, it is the final step before a brief opportunity to just uh, take a deep breath and 
There it Recompose is, yourself. You had to get one in I right need there. one, too. It, it served go. two purposes. <laughs> it helped me out from last segment, and it also was a good encapsulation of what you'll probably be doing here by the end of the week. But not an opportunity yet. No rest for the weary just yet. You not still yet. have opportunities to figure out exactly what's going on with this Colts team that's as hard of a puzzle as anybody to solve. But we talked about it a little bit to start the show. We'll revisit it here. When you look at this Colts roster, the biggest question mark that will get all the clicks, that will get all the engagement, of course, is the quarterback conversation. Is it Minshew? Is it Richardson? Is one getting a win over Houston? Is one not getting a win over Houston? Who's to say which one is more important than the other? I'm going on a tangent again. For you, position by position group, where is the most sauce, the most juice for you heading into veteran minicamp in the lead up to this final, I don't want to call it an audition, but this final showing before this gap between now and training camp? Outside of the obvious one, which is quarterback, I mean, that is going to decide everything for this season. I think a sleeper pick, you know, I'll go quarterback and then most enticing will probably be cornerback just because you don't know what's going to go on with that position. They're so young and thin. But a sleeper for me will be, does Blake Freeland show anything on the offensive line and contend for a starting spot, whether it's at guard or tackle? Um, I'm curious to see how he's coming along. He showed something throughout you know, OTAs and, and, and looks like he's coming along nicely. But I just wonder how confident they feel in him to be a potential starter and or an insurance package just in case inevitably, you know, Offensive lineman gets dinged up. So I'm curious to see that. And then obviously we talked about the bloodbath that is going to happen with the tight end room. I think that's going to happen more so throughout training camp. Maybe not right now in veteran minicamp. But for veteran minicamp, who are some of these cornerbacks that are going to have more opportunities? Because I know we talked a lot about Darius Rush, Julius Brents, you know, but Dallas Flowers is still there. He showed some promise last season as far as the. And then I think he adds something as far as kickoff and punt return as well. So could he fill that void that Isaiah Rodgers might leave if it's found that he did gamble on these games, he has to miss time? Is Dallas Flowers someone who can be sort of two birds, one stone, where you have a dynamic kick returner and someone who could you know, start and be a longer, more athletic cornerback? So um, Tony Brown's another one who might be able to step up. He's a bit of a veteran, never really been a starter throughout his career. So again, that's a group that – if you asked me two weeks ago about, I probably wouldn't have been that engaged with because I knew, okay, oh, they're young. They're going to struggle a little bit. But now it's like, okay, how much do they want to struggle if these guys can't get up to speed quick enough? And so, I mean, outside of Kenny Moore, you have a bunch of rookies and second-year guys who just don't have the experience. But I'm excited about it just because, again, anytime you get to see more reps in person, it helps, I think, me sort of uh, – get a a nice feel for what's going on because the one day a week was great. I mean, you don't want to take that for granted because obviously they don't have to like bring you in at certain days. However, being there three days in a row, I'm really curious to see what the continuity from day to day looks like. And also, on a tangent, Shane Steichen's been playing this cat and mouse game where he's like, oh, the days you show up, Gardner's been with... could be here. Yeah, you know, Gardner's been the one, (laughs) the number one quarterback, you know, the days you guys show up is just a coincidence. Now we get three days in a row to no see hiding. who is QB1 right now. I'm not saying this is going to be the end-all, be-all, but I think it will be interesting to see if, in fact, it is Gardner Minshew who continues to take the, the number one reps with you know the 11-11 drills. We can't put the cart before the horse with this quarterback conversation, but 
that security blanket, if you will, of, oh, yeah, this just happens to be the day that you're here, and it was Minshew out there taking first-team reps. I would take a leap forward to some extent if it's Minshew getting first-team reps each day. There's no real divide or majority of the reps are clearly going to Gardner Minshew three consecutive days. Because at that point, I know things can change between now and then, but unless you're manipulating the media to some extent, like let's say he's, oh yeah, one day is going to be, <laughs> like no, let's say there's no answers. One day it's full team reps for Richardson, one day it's full team reps for Minshew, and then they, they split a fair, a fair decided number on that third day. Well, we didn't really learn anything. Right. For you, I know you're not going to get too antsy one or the other, but does it give any real clear indication if it was, just for the sake of argument, Minshew with the majority unquestioned first team reps three days in a row? I think there would have to be a little bit given to that, right? Because again, what Shane Steichen has been telling us is that this is going to be a split. It's going to be a joint approach and there hasn't been a determination just yet. Now, Again, if a lot of that is install and because he knows the offense better, just because he's worked with Shane Stacking in the years past, I get that. But, you know, I'd have to give it a little bit of a, you know, not side eye, but I'd look at it, you know, wide eye just to see what's going on. And I think, again, right now, whatever we write is kind of hyperbolic because it's so early in the offseason. But if we come back in training camp, then we'll really see what's going on. And that's also why I can't be too uh, – hard on the offensive line because you just don't know. They're not really competing against anyone just yet. So as boring as it sounds, you won't get as many answers as you would like from this. But again, anytime you get to get eyes on the rookie quarterback and his mentor, whether he's the week one starter or not, is good because it just adds more information to what we're trying to ultimately learn with this whole process and how it goes. Because when we get down to you know September and they pick a starter – we should be able to look back at every single step. And then even if we don't get an answer tomorrow or the next day, we'll get answers down the line. Okay, if this is the approach you're taking, this guy starting, why was this the approach back then? And what did that do to help you prepare for now? So a lot of moving parts, but I do think my eyebrows will be raised if it was Minshew all three days getting all of the 11-on-11 first-team reps. And to me, I count more of the 11-on-11 reps. I don't really count the 7-on-7s because there has been a little more um, – mixing in with that but to me ultimately when you line up and you got all your guys out there who's up there with the ones matters and then also again as I said earlier who are the ones because we haven't seen Pittman we haven't seen Al Pierce we haven't seen Josh Downs since rookie minicamp so we would like to see some of these top guys Johnny Woods another guy be out there and just give you sort of an easier path to understand who these guys are and what they would look like with Anthony Richardson around him. I think something, James, that we haven't really talked about a lot of at all, really, not just here, but across all three shows and within the last month, especially like we always think about the defensive line. like, all right, yeah, they've got Buck, they've got Grove. Uh, and then there's Quiddy Pay, but then when you examine like after that, there's sure there's Samson Ubicom and Daiwa Dangbo, but literally after that, it's, you got Adi Tamiwa, Adabare, Taven Bryan, Taekwon Lewis, and a bunch of other guys. So, to me, something to watch is that second unit. Because at some point, if Buck goes down, Buckner goes down with an injury or Grover Stewart goes down with an injury or those guys just need to come off the field for a couple plays to catch their breath or, or whatnot, uh, who's stepping in to fill those voids? Yes, Gus Bradley actually mentioned that, Eddie, where he was saying he wants to be able to get to that depth 
um, in that position where you can rotate guys out and they're still fresh in the fourth quarter and your top dogs aren't gassed because they had to play so many snaps. Now, I know Grover Stewart was like, I ain't coming out. I don't want to come out. But for his own good, you would like to relieve him a little bit throughout the game. That way, I mean, could you imagine a fresh buck and a fresh Grove coming at you with the game on the line? That obviously is a lot different than having those same guys out there, but they've played every single snap because you can't trust the guys behind them. And to take it a step further than that, we've joked a little bit with him or about him in regards to the I'm not ready to be a part of a rebuild again mindset that DeForest Buckner has had at times when he's been very honest with the media. I don't fault him with that, by the way. Like, I appreciate the honesty. So often you have fences that are up from players. I appreciate the honesty. I get where he's coming from. But to Eddie's point overall, maybe not just this season, but taking it a step further, he is this year and the next year under his contract, and he's an unrestricted free agent. He's going to be 31 at that point in time. At that point, you're looking at two possible avenues. Either you get a a money-friendly deal with him at age 31 where you feel like fast-forwarding two years from now, he is still an anchor within the trenches of this defense and is going to be a major factor towards your playoff push, your division push, whatever it is. Again, two years down the line. Otherwise, the more important reason to have second-unit guys and development in the interior on the defensive line is who is going to one day replace DeForest Buckner if it's somebody in-house two years from now, assuming again, we're not even talking about the human element of all this. If I'm DeForest Buckner and I don't want to be a part of a rebuild and it's clear there's a rebuild going on this year, what do I want to do? Am I asking Chris Ballard, hey, like this this isn't really what I signed up for. I know I still have two years left here, but I, I want to go to a contender or am I content in this veteran role for the next two seasons knowing that I'm potentially in all likelihood wasting away two years of my prime here in Indy. I mean, that's that's a serious conversation that both DeForest Buckner, both the Colts, and the in general construction of this roster is going to have to be looked at, maybe not right away this year, but if you're kind enough to be honest from your internal perspective and share how you're feeling, which again, I appreciate DeForest Buckner for doing, this is not being used against it by any means. It's, it's, I, I'd do the same thing if I was him. If I was him, I was 29 years old, I was at the height of my powers, and I'm looking around and I'm not seeing a championship opportunity here. The money's nice. I could put my feet up and be fine, but do I really want to be a teacher at this point in my career, or do I want to try to go chase a ring? And for me, it's the latter. That's something that's definitely going to be explored. I know we talked a lot about you know, Pittman, JT, their futures. Bucks' future is one you have to weigh. And even Grover Stewart, I mean, he's going into a contract year. Yeah. As much as this franchise has loved Buck, and I think that, I mean, not Buck Grove, who has a great, you know, attitude and someone who brings a lot of spirit and accountability and just high-level play to the team, we haven't heard too much about his contract situation, his contract negotiations. Do you move on from him? So this team could look a lot different next year. And again, I think a lot of it will have to do with how this season looks, and that will define what your future looks like. Because if it goes kind of how we anticipate where there are struggles, there's growing, growing pains, but your quarterback, Anthony Richardson, then you have to go all in on that and kind of get everything lined up to his timeline rather than trying to pigeonhole him into the timeline that was built for quite honestly, another team, another quarterback. I mean, three or four years ago, you thought that this team was ready to make a run, to do something special with whoever was under center that obviously hasn't gone as planned. And now you're kind of stuck with the pieces that are left over from that regime. And not saying they're bad pieces, but how do you go about 
maximizing what you have. And if that means exploring trade options, you have to do it as a GM, as a team, because, again, you can't um, sell two dreams, so to speak. Like You can't tell certain players, hey, we got our franchise quarterback. It's going to take a while until the others go, oh, you know, it's not going to take that long. We'll be right back in it. And you're, you're not going to be right there, I don't think, anytime soon. And by anytime soon, I think in the next – Three, four, five years. I'm yeah. not, I don't think they're going to be a Super Bowl contender anywhere in that window. Um, but by then, you would like to know that you have a franchise quarterback, and then you can hopefully, you know, have some playoff appearances underneath your belt, something like that, to at least build on. And we don't have the time this segment of the rest of the show to fully look at salary cap numbers and do a real numbers crunch on this. But if we get to close to the trade deadline this year, if I'm a contender and I see DeForest Buckner as a missing piece. And you know that he's, again, assuming he's able to have a healthy campaign, you would have him under team control for half a season if you're a contender, plus all of next season. I mean, I'm if he asks, I'm not saying the Colts are going to do this, but if DeForest Buckner was to approach them and say, hey, I I don't really want to be part of this we're rebuild. We're whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Minshew got that win over Houston, but other than that, we're, uh, we're, we're trying to I mean, clearly be in a rebuild. I'm... I'm looking, and I think someone would be interested. I don't know if the value would be fair for Colts fans, but there'd be a market for him. I think that he's probably worth a second for a, a team that's really knocking at the door. Like, will Cincinnati give up a second for him and just go try to chase it? Because you also have to look at what he would bring to a team, and I'm getting a really hypothetical now, but right. you know, if he stays in the AFC and he joins a team that is a contender, you want to add a defensive piece that can make life harder on that guy over there in Kansas City who is still top dog. So, again, we're going down sort of the rabbit hole, but these are... These are real-world decisions that are going to have to be Yeah, I mean, these are like threads you have to kind of tug at, and you're only going to tug at them a little bit harder with each day that passes, and it hasn't been resolved. So, I mean, we'll have a chance to talk to Chris Ballard, Jim Irsay soon enough. They always talk around, you know, camp time and things like that later this summer, but there's going to be questions that they'll have to answer and maybe they don't have to answer them, but they'll have to, uh, you know, give a non-answer because I'm going to ask anyway about, you know, what direction is this team going? And I asked that question the last time we talked to Chris Ballard, last time we talked to, you know, DeForest Buckner and no one could really give a clear answer. Now this is before the draft. The draft is over. We know what direction you're going as far as how that went. All of the teasing about trading back and whatever else is out the window. You have your young quarterback. Now I want to know, what have you told the Zaire Franklins, the Buckners, the Groves, you know, the, the players on this team who have been here for a while and are veterans about the future and what it looks like? Because I know that Chris Ballard is a straight shooter, but he's in a unique spot because, again, you can't have this – two timeline thing going on with the team and expect it to be successful. I'm not looking at depth charts before we step away here. I'm looking at just strictly cap. The Jets have the money to potentially make it happen. Cowboys have the money to potentially make it happen. The Bengals have to be a little bit creative, but they would have the cap space to potentially make it happen. That's three contenders. Philadelphia is still with 13.8 million in cap space, by the way, but they're they don't they don't necessarily need <laughs> like goodness gracious. Do, do they need like everyone over there? They already have the entire Georgia football team. Right. <laughs> so that's probably not a real destination. But again, I think there'd be a market if you're a contender and you feel like you're a DeForest Buckner piece away. But that would be a conversation that we're getting a little bit in the weeds there, but 
it is a serious conversation when you look at what this team is going to be the next two to three seasons. If you're trying to find value and you're trying to also find a nice landing spot for a player that would, in theory, be hoping to contend for a championship. We're going to take our final break. When we come back, we'll hand out bets. Last predictions for NBA Finals Game 5. Again, you can hear that right here at 7.30 with coverage starting on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan, bets and more to close the show when we return. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Final time here on the Fan Midday Show. You heard that tease just a couple moments ago. Right with JMV coming up here at the top of the hour. If you want to spend more time with John as well as Kevin and Query, join the fan on the Back Nine, Tuesday, July 11th. Back Nine Golf and Entertainment. All tickets sold to benefit the American Heart Association. If you want more information, go to 1075thefan.com. You can join the solo act, or if you'd like to sign up your foursome as well, You'll get three hours of play, lunch, some fan swag. I love that. A special gift as well to commemorate your participation in the event. Plus, JMV hosts a live auction, which will have sports memorabilia and one-of-a-kind experiences as well. For more information, go to 1075thefan.com. We've got some bets to get to. Game 5 of the NBA Finals. Coverage begins right here at 7.30. Let's win some money. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my this is how I win. Today's plays of the day. I'm going to lay the one and a half on the run line for the Tampa Bay Rays as they take on the Oakland Athletics. I understand, Eddie. I know the Athletics are hot. I know they're they're, they're five and five in their last ten. They've won five straight, Jimmy. I'm just going Get off. Get it right. I'm, hey, they, uh, both five are true. Straight. Both are true. Five both straight. are true. Last ten, they're five and five. They've also won five in a row. That changes tonight. Late one and a half on the Tampa Bay Rays. Also in baseball, going to take the Cincinnati Reds. First five innings today on the money line against the Kansas City Royals. In the NBA Finals, lay the nine. It's blowout fashion for the Denver Nuggets. I was looking for the first half of four and a half, but I can't find it in my book for some reason. That's probably a technological issue on my end. Also, Overfest, 28 and a half for Nikola Jokic, 25 and a half for Jamal Murray. We'll start with Eddie for bets because James is just making a pick. He doesn't get to the gambling well. He's just making a straight-up pick. I'm taking the Struces loose under 7.5 points. I don't think he's got... He doesn't have, have him going this series. And I will take the San Francisco Giants on the money line. I will go the full game in this one. I trust their bullpen. I don't like the... Uh, I don't like the odds for the first five. Minus 152. So it's a rare day where I will take the full nine money line. Logan Webb on the mound. Really like Webb against the uh, Cardinals lineup. This is a weird multiverse we've stepped into where I'm taking a first five wager and you the head priest of first five wagers are defecting and going to a full game bet. James, what do you like in game five of the NBA Finals? Does it end tonight? It ends tonight. Denver gets their first championship as a franchise, and Nikola Jokic solidifies himself as one of the best players in NBA history. And you will be taking the under on that Tyler Hero wager that we talked about oh, earlier in the show. Way under. Eight like and I said, points. I will be under and I will be over his hand smacking it. <laughs> does he does he legitimately see the floor tonight or do you think that- I think so. Yeah, you're desperate. Okay. You do whatever you can to try to win, but it doesn't work because Jokic is like Thanos. It's inevitable. <laughs> Snap the finger, it's over. Last Infinity Stone comes tonight. I like it. I love that. Anytime you're going to go into the Marvel well, it's 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 warms my heart. I appreciate that. James will be back in here next week 
I believe. Next Monday. Yeah, James Boyd will be back in here next Monday. Greg Regstraw will be in the chair tomorrow, then myself and Will Haskett on Wednesday. Special thanks to Greg Arias, as well as Jonathan Alexander and Shane Young. Podcast will be up, 1075thefan.com. The adventure continues, though. Keep it right here on The Fan. Ride with JMV continues. Keep your Monday going strong. Keep it right here.